Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Jason. Yeah. We made it happen. Is it okay uh, on speaker or would you rather me go on to the regular? This sounds phone? good, actually. It's nice and nice and loud. Okay. Yeah. I never know. Doing the main recording through uh, with just with GarageBand and then have a backup recording happening as well because, oh boy, nothing worse than doing one of these things and then finding out something went wrong with the recording, eh? Yeah, I actually have done a few recordings myself. I, I, I did a, an interview with uh, Brother Ashin Chasson um, back when he was known as Brian. Um, and uh, Did you just out him? <laughs> are we recording now? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize we were on air yet. Uh, uh, well, no, I mean, I, th- I, think he's, I think he's pretty public about what his name is. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Plus the first name is not really helpful. Name. I also did uh, Jason Miller, and, and uh, the Jason Miller one was like just totally unusable. And Frater Ash and Chassans, I have it up for free on my website somewhere because it's pretty it's pretty rough because you can barely hear them. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I did uh, 
Edward Reeves Esoterinerd podcast the first time, and it was like three and a half hours, and uh, it, it all got lost except for a 20-minute clip that I had uh, somehow caught on my phone or something. And uh, it was probably good because he, he, he spent a lot of time going on rants about zinc, <laughs> <laughs> as people tend to do about, you know. Um, but yeah, Ashton Chassan is great. He and I have been, uh, he and I for a while were chatting back and forth, but not about magic. We were chatting about ninjutsu because <laughs> we both do that like many other uh, magicians, it seems. Not me, but yeah, there certainly are quite a few. No, you, but you I have think, the, the music thing. I took some hard work as a teenager, but I never, I never got, got very far with it. What's that? You, you do, you have the music thing going on, don't you? Um, I do play music, but uh, not, not uh, very, not very much. Actually, uh, the closest thing to music is a, uh, you know, um, all my later meditation recordings have the sounds I created, but they're all pretty. I wouldn't exactly call it music. <laughs> it's more just sort of walls of sound. But you you play guitar and, and do that sort of thing. I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. music's great. Uh, saved you, my life at one point for sure. I used to be in a band, and um, I haven't I haven't played as much since we stopped playing together. So yeah, it happens there. But I'm actually I um I, I there's four generations of uh, or more in, of uh, musicians in my family. My mother and father were both musicians. My Grandmother's a musician. I'm a musician, and my daughter Aurora has been. Uh, she's just started playing and writing music herself. So. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. yeah, she's actually writing. She's writing a, uh, or she's written um, a um, a musical, like a musical theater composition. It's quite quite long and extensive. So, it's very impressive. Yeah, is so. Th- those are your uh, kids in the uh, the brilliant advert commercially did for the Anakian chessboard, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, those are my kids. I mean, that's that's years old at this point. I, she was probably 10 or something at that point. So. I think you deserve eternal praise from the entire magical world for, for creating not just that, but the commercial itself. <laughs> I think the commercial might be better than the game. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've been thinking about retooling that game and and, uh, and doing it again because I've got a lot of art for it, but I, I I was never quite satisfied with how it came out. So oh really? Um, it's not really it's not really available. Um, I, I do need to get one if it's ever possible. Well, what I, what I'm hoping to do is to actually make the game pieces a bit larger. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if I can be able to uh, keep that. The, the, the accurate price from the commercial, but but I'll try and keep it as as a, as low as possible. But you know, once you start getting into like like actual you know cut pieces and stuff, it gets a bit more expensive. So I don't think people uh, would mind paying more for that at all. We'll see. I don't know. It's 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 one of those. Pro- I've I've always got two hundred projects or something in my mind that you know some of some of them actually come into the world and some don't. You are incredibly busy. It has always seemed since I first became aware of you years and years ago. Well, I I kind of um, I don't know. I, I I feel kind of driven to it. I, you know, at a certain point in my life, I sort of asked to be given assignments from the universe, and I have I've yet to find a day when I'm not given. <laughs> more work to do right yeah i know i know i i tend to also uh just uh pursue m- too much and and uh i'd rather uh push myself to go harder than than uh <laughs> give up on anything it's funny um 
I, I had a, a little bit of a near-death experience in February. Oh, uh, I had a medical issue. I'm not going to get into the details of it because it's kind of gross. But at any rate, I was I was I was in a severe trauma, and I I definitely felt myself, um, you know, leaving leaving the physical plane at, at a certain point. And the the thought in my head that first at first I was like, oh, my, I'm going to miss my kids, and they're going to miss me. I wonder what are they going to do. And then I was like, oh, and I've got that 30 day grimoire course that i just started working on i can't i can't, I can't just leave those people without finishing the course <laughs> so, yeah, that was what put me here yeah tell your kids daddy sticking around because he's got work to do and you're cool right? too. <laughs> so i'm curious um having just done your master class in Akian course which was wonderful um i really appreciate that you advertised a discount because I'm a Canadian trapped in America during this quarantine scenario. And the retreat center I was teaching at for last year shut down. So, like, you know, it's been hard to survive, let's shall we say. Um, and it was really great to get to do something like that because I was just trained in the Golden Dawn system of Anakian magic. And I know that very well. And it was amazing when I did your course to realize that what I was getting wasn't just a traditional... Puritan Anakian magic, as as Leech was presenting, but but also two sort of hybrid forms, yours and Stenwick's. Yeah, I mean, I actually think uh, Scott and I actually are are almost somewhat similar, although I take a little bit more of a sort of free 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 flowing <laughs> attitude towards it than he does. But you know, I think that I think ultimately we're not all that far from one another. Yeah, um, Aaron is always obviously very you know sort of interested in. Uh, establishing the correct procedures and so forth. So that's his that's his uh, Damon working through him. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I actually had a, a thought uh, at one point that really it was powerfully occurred to me while while doing that, and I realized because I was it, it brought up so many different thoughts about methodologies, systems, and approaches, and you know what's better, what's best, or you know such things. And I realized, you know what. If you are, if you've gone through the Golden Dawn, the Golden Dawn system of Anakin magic really, I think, I, I think makes sense. Have if you've gone through the Golden Dawn, right? Sure. But if you haven't gone through the Golden Dawn because the initiations and all of that and the the practices are crucial to working that system. But if you haven't, it makes more sense to me if you just want to do Anakin magic to do the traditional version that that Leech presented. Well, I mean, I, of course, uh, you probably know that Aaron is is actually one of the head adepts of, of one of the largest uh, Golden Dawn groups too. So I mean, he's Very he's aware. actually got his feet he's got his feet in both worlds. Oh, I'm um, yeah, super aware. Yeah, I was talking. I fact, was hanging with that, Chick Cicero in February, and we were talking pretty much only about Aaron. Okay, yeah, and, uh, Chick, Chick Cicero has actually done a lot of work with the Enochian too. That he, I I I never got into the uh, inner order of the of their of their Golden Dawn, but. Um, they, they apparently have developed it quite a bit further than than what the you know the Westcott materials had. So, if you're interested in Golden Dawn and Nokia magic, that might be the one to go to. Although I guess probably the other guys have done interesting things too. I do try and send people to Chick's order. Um, I like to send people to orders that seems best for them, uh, as opposed to go to the one I went to, which is now gone, long gone. Um, so uh, I, yeah, there's I send people to whatever I consider the main reputable orders when they're interested. Were, were you were you in one of the smaller ones or? I'm Robert Zink's godson. 
okay. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. I was the, and by the time I, things, the schism between Canada and the U.S. happened, I was the chief of Canada and Temple Tehuti in Vancouver. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, it's an interesting I, I, story. Well, you should, do you, do you tell it or do you just interview other people about their stories? <laughs> <laughs> I like to talk about people I want to talk, uh, talk with people I want to talk to. Um, I, I mean, I can give you the, the footnotes. I, I've, I've written a lot of it down in an autobiography that I initially released, but then my mom read it and said, can you wait till I'm dead? And I said, okay. So uh, <laughs> she's uh, fighting the good fight against cancer in you Vancouver gotta, you right You've got a posthumous publishing permission for something? Uh, yeah, because it, it also covers uh, childhood stuff, and I come from a rough background and all of that, you know. Um, she didn't want it to be less – she didn't want me to change anything. She, she wanted to stay brutally honest because who, who wants a – who you know, there's the, they say there's two kinds of autobiographies, right? There's uh, – like uh, there's what's that musician one's uh, who's the musician who wrote that really gritty, brutally honest one, famous famous musician I forget. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it was a really big deal when it came out. I thought maybe it would occur to you. Anyway, you know there's 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 you can write you can write one version or another, and only one kind of autobiography is really interesting to read. The sort of prosaic uh, redacted one is just not really that interesting, is it? You know? Well, sure. I, I, there's all, there's, I think there's a third one, which is the either the hagiography or the auto hagiography, where where they kind of try and make the person look way better than they actually were, um, which there's a bunch of, particularly in occultism. So, <laughs> I'm actually like, I, uh, I, I've been diving into uh, Crowley's hagiography this year because I during the Kincaid fires I was part of the evacuation here in California and I found a first edition in Santa Rosa and picked it up for. Uh, I got. They gave me a, an evacuation discount for twenty five bucks for a first edition hardcover. So I've been reading some of that, and wow. it has changed my perspective on Crowley in some significant ways since my first grade eight book report I did for when I was in Waldorf school back in the early nineties. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine what that looked like. I just was trying to shock my Waldorf school teachers, but instead they were like, "Oh, Alistair Crowley." I'm like, "You know who he is?" And they're like, "Well, of course, we, we're." followers of Rudolf Steiner. We know all about Crowley. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so much for shock value. They were able to actually make intelligent comments on it. I was like, damn. <laughs> um, so did you, so did, you did the Outer Order of the Golden Dawn in, in Chick's Order? Um, I, oh, I've only taken a couple of the grades. Um, I, it, it was one of those things where uh, I, met, I met Chick and Tabby um, and maybe even Aaron at, at some conference. I realized they were here in Florida and I was like, oh, well, I, uh, I, I've, I've been involved in other, you know, initiatory organizations, but I've never done the, you know, sort of regular Golden Dawn. And these guys seem really cool. So I went and, you know, hung out with them for a little while. It was one of those things where it was a little bit tough because, like, Chick was kind of treating me like I was in the inner order <laughs> because I, you know, I'd written books and you know, obviously, you know, I've been around the block and stuff. And some of his um, adepts and, and four sevens and stuff were like, you know, what do you, why are you, you know, why are you wanting to bring him into the vault? Like, what are you talking about? I'm not supposed to do that. So I said, and, and that, between that and the fact that um, I w they were all really nice guys so I, uh, and, and, and nice women, I'm not in any way casting aspersions on any of them. I really liked everyone who was there. Um, but, that, you know, it just felt a little odd. And then um, I had just had a daughter. Like, we were, my first daughter was, I think, like two or something like that. And, 
it was tough because it was it was kind of a you know it was the weekend and uh, that was when they met and I just, I ended up missing a bunch of you know temple meetings and stuff and it just sort of, I, just, I just sort of faded away. Yeah, and before that, did you do the OTO? Yeah, I've been I've, uh, I haven't been active for a while in the OTO, but I did the OTO and I did I did the AA as well, one of the one of the AAs I needed just um, and. Uh, uh, various other little little things like I was in a witchcraft coven at one point. And yeah, witchcraft. Oh, that was definitely that? part of my early early years was Wicca and uh, following Scott Cunningham. Actually, the retreat center I'm still here at uh, is run by uh, De Tracy Regula, who was one of Cunningham's best friends and at his deathbed and wrote the uh, the biography on him. Cool. Yeah, so Cunningham's always been a part of my. I'm always going to love him, you know, and uh, and the the shamanic and Wicca and druidry of my youth, which has never really gone his, away. His, his guide to magical herbs was definitely one of my first uh, one of my first books, probably oh. within the first ten books I, I ever had. Remarkable so book. And actually, De Tracy told me that when she, she remembers when he was writing it, and he apparently painstakingly went through and tried out every single thing himself that he wrote about. And I had no idea. I never assumed that that was the case. But remarkable, wow. eh? Isn't that just remarkable? I mean, in a, it, it is in the fact that it is so encyclopedic in, in, in scope. But on the other hand, it's probably best practice to do that, wouldn't you think? <laughs> not, not write down things you haven't experimented with. Yeah, well, we're <laughs> in the age of uh, cut-and-paste occultism oftentimes. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it is it is a very different world today than, than the world that I, you know, I've, I've been involved in occultism since the 1980s, um, although not involved in any organizations until the mid nineties. Yeah. But, uh, but I used to go to a, uh, you know, a new age store and purchase books and tarot decks and stuff like that from them and crystals and herbs and all kinds of stuff from them. And, yeah. uh, that was, that was like the only place you could find it, it was this one shop called unicorn books and art. And, uh, it was in Lexington center at first and then they moved to Arlington. Um, anyone from Massachusetts from that back at the time period, I'm sure, will remember that place. Although I, I understand that it's no longer there. So, uh, it was a very, very cool place. One of the first places I ever taught workshops to. Where, where do you live again? Um, I live in Florida today. Oh wow! Um, so I used you, to. I, you, I grew up in Massachusetts. Ah, uh, cool, cool. Yeah, I joined the Gondon in '96. Uh, I was very young. I was 15, and. Uh, it was funny, I actually graduated the philosophy, from Philosophists in a portal during my grade 12 years, so that was a weird, weird experience, sort of, you know, of course, it was the only path for me, really. Um, obviously, things fell apart when uh, Zinc started to go haywire, and uh, I, you know, we're, we've been estranged ever since, needless to say. I also was the guy, I'm also the guy who was on the throne of the Hierophant doing a Nephi initiation when David Griffin broke in through the front door of our temple and it had to be forced out by the Phylix at the point of a Claymore. Wow. Yeah. So I've been through it. I grew up in a transcendental meditation Maharishi family before going to Walder school. So I've, I've, I've experienced a bunch of different things and still to this day though, uh, practice the same stuff, you know, my spirituality is my spirituality and that's what what I really love about um, all your products and your website and everything like that. It seems like you've just really thrown yourself fully into it for a very long time, and a lot of people don't have that staying power often. 
Well, in a way, I mean, it's funny because I because I'm interested in a lot of different things. Like I, I study um, uh, yoga philosophy. I've, I've I've really taken some deep dives into that uh, various times over the, over the years. Um, I've studied Buddhism, uh, pretty both the the Pali Canon and and Tibetan Buddhism um, pretty extensively, and um, I'm, I'm I'm very interested in sort of more ancient hermeticism or hermetism yeah. and. Uh, you know, sort of the the Greco Egyptian um, mystical and magical stuff. I'm, I'm you know very I, I like I'm very interested in Neoplatonism and, and Plato. I've actually just been rereading um, uh, Plato's dialogues recently and finding it very fascinating. I, I think I was drawn to it because of the uh, our current political climate. And I was just thinking about you know what is the what is the perfect republic? And I started reading the Republic, and then I started reading the yeah. Um, not that, I, not that I necessarily think Plato's Republic is, is the perfect republic in, in every way. <laughs> actually, when I, when I was reading it this time, I kind of feel like it's more actually about the individual and less about the state than, than you would think, considering that it's called the Republic. But, I mean, repeatedly, uh, the Aristocrates you know, character references the fact that the state is, of course, theoretical, but he never says that about the person who is basically divided up into the same kinds of categories as the state is. And and so, like the whole thing seems really to be more of a metaphor about the about the self than it is about the the state per se. Although I'm sure that you know someone someone some Plato scholar would probably argue with me on that. But uh, what are your thoughts on his uh, contentions about Atlantis? Do you think he was talking about something he had heard of as a real place? Um, well, there's a lot. If it, I've, I've been I've, again, I've been doing this kind of deep dive into Plato over the past couple of months. So, Hence the uh, question. When, when, you got, when you consume it all like together, you start to notice that there are certain patterns in it, and, and there, there do see, there's, there's a lot of little tales that are that are captured in the dialogues, and there'll just be these extended speeches and stories that go on. Um, Atlantis is one. The story of Ur, which is a, which is a, uh, about the doctrine of reincarnation, is another. Um, there's a bunch of stuff about uh, you know various sorts of uh, early versions of Athens that, uh, that that are described in various of the dialogues that you know involve different sorts of um, political structures and place and so forth and so forth. So I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that sort of. Um, little narratives, mini narratives within it. And I do have the feeling that those are probably sort of folk tales that were being purported at that time period that he was kind of capturing and putting down. So um, that's my impression. Yeah. I was, I was, I was curious to hear the fact that, that Hancock mentioned the time frame at which in Plato, it was said that, that the cataclysm wiped out Atlantis corresponds. We now know to, the event of an actual timing of a cataclysm like the flood. Um, that was a little bit strange. It's strange to find that out, don't you think? Yeah, well, I mean, in truth, the, that particular story d- defines several um, cataclysms that take place and basically says that it's a cyclical thing that happens, that the world comes into being and is destroyed over and over again, um, which kind of separates it out from the like you know, other narratives that that are similar, but that the that the reason that they even know about it is because in um, in Egypt, due to the 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 way that the Nile functions, they don't get um, inundated by fire when fire ones happen, and they don't get inundated by water when water ones 
So basically, the, the idea is that there's several different ways in which the world gets destroyed and Egypt ends up getting spared more than any place else. So, they, so their records go back much further. Interesting. Wow. Until, of course, we took over and burned it all down. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, we're good at doing that as we see again today. Uh, right. Are you more, uh, more a fan of the idea of Comet's going to wipe us out or we're going to do it to ourselves? Uh, I suspect humanity will persevere for a while longer, but I, I, I don't. I don't know whether the, our current um, ideas and ideals are going to last all that many more generations if keep, things keep going the way they're going right now. Yeah, that's for sure. It's strange times. Strange times. Well, what I think. What I think is unfortunate. Maybe this is just the perspective of a person who's getting older, but. Um, it, to me, it feels like b- both the left and the right are um, like, exceeding where they really need to be going to the point where they're they're both being destructive at this point in, in ways that are not super helpful. You know, like I, the yep. there, there's good there's good um, there's good ideas on both sides, but both sides have gotten too aggressive and angry about everything i mean i just feel like social media is just so angry at this point and it's like we, we need to have a a reasoned discussion about these issues rather than a one in which everyone just sort of calls each other names yeah blocks di- each other dialogue is the thing that's really under attack uh, that that may be that may be really what it is it's the, the whole premise of actually being able to take in another person's perspective and um you know, grow from it is is kind of missing in in a lot of um, communication at this point. Yeah, you know, people are very convinced that they're correct, and you know, sometimes they are. Yeah. <laughs> there are certainly right and wrong answers in the world to a lot of things, but there's also a lot of stuff that is a little more nuanced. Like, I mean, yeah, guns are terrible and hurt people and kill people, but it is taking them out of people's hands really the best thing to do. Or is that just one answer to a potential problem? Is that the o- is that the only answer? Is that the best answer? I don't know. You know, what is the best answer? The way to, to discover that is to actually explore the matter rather than just yell rhetoric at each other like, no, we need our guns, or no, guns will kill everybody. We need to get rid of them. Like, we need to have an actual discussion about these things where people are keeping their cool and thinking about what's actually happening and what actually works. Yeah. Which I realize even, even in the halls of legislation, People are just yelling at each other at this point. It's quite crazy. It does seem like all the adults have vanished. Yes, that is a very good, very good way of expressing it. The adults have left, and all of us grown-up children are left screaming at each other. I feel often these days like I'm in a kindergarten, and like I'm a teacher in a kindergarten, but the kindergartners are in charge. Yeah. You know, it's... Uh, that, the teacher that could the come teacher left the room. Way. Sorry, what did you say? I said the teacher left the room. Yeah, left the one left the one left the one she thought was smart in place, and he just went, "Nope, I'm gonna I'm gonna tear everything down. We're all just gonna go crazy." Yeah, it's 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 definitely some kind of alchemy, isn't it? I wonder I what, know, what gold that's will exactly emerge. what it is. Yeah, no, there's there's an. Uh, Albedo phase coming up at some point in the future. 
I, I keep saying that I think it's a great time for magic. For sure. I mean, it, it, it is and it isn't, though, because I think there's a number of factors that, that make magic a challenge at this point. Um, one of which being that there's so much information that it's very hard to discern. You know, I mean, when I was when I was coming up, we had a lot of bad information, and I've, I've spent a lot of my life, like, looking at all the bad information that I believed to be true and going, oh, gosh, i gotta got to amend that in my mind. <laughs> but today we have all that bad information and, all, and a bunch of other information and a bunch of other information and a bunch of, you know, I mean, it's just there's so much coming at you at all times that, like you said, cut-and-paste magic is possible because people don't even have to have done a single bit of magic and they can just, they can write you know, hundreds of pages just by sort of borrowing ideas from other people. Yeah. And there's this other uh, resurgence of the, the, the armchair magicians. I've actually had people, magicians, tell me that they don't need to do ritual work if they have the books that the rituals are in. I know. Silence. Right? I'm, not, I'm not sure how, how that, how that, uh, how, what is it? I think it's a new. Like I, the, I think it's the idea that yeah, it's this weird form of like talismanism, like making a religion out of possession of, of physical objects and possessing them. If you have the, like, so whoever has the biggest library is the most spiritual. In other words, <laughs> well, for sure. And there's and there's lots of books out there that are on my shelves that like I look. I'm like that. You have to pay three hundred dollars to get a copy of that book. Yeah. Seriously. But yeah. but obviously you know it's out of print and so people fetishize it and turn it into something uh, incredibly important to them. And I also think that that's an, that there's <laughs> there are lots of things like there's this book um, that uh, is a, a Gnostic text. Um, it's the first and second books of Jew is the way. But it's you know it's it's really e, uh, you know Eota. Etta and um, Upsilon, I think, but uh, but you know it's it, it's it's actually Coptic, so I'm not sure if I'm even saying the right uh, letters. But so it's a it's a, it's a book that sort of purports to be this special code that teaches how to open these portals to get to you know higher Gnostic visions or whatever. That's just a bunch of weird symbols and magical phrases and so forth. Um, but it hasn't been in print for a very long time. And so like I, I heard about it and I was like, Oh, I'd like to read that. And I, <laughs> and I looked and I looked for it and you couldn't find it for less than like five or $600. And this is some scholarly book of, um, you know, just, I mean, not, not really all that useful because there's lots of, because it's from an old papyrus. So it's, there's lots of, you know, uh, ellipses or whatever, you know, missing, missing parts of it. And, um, so, but you know, it was—it's been mentioned in a number of books, and so it's been fetishized into this very important thing that obviously people are willing to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars to get their hands on. Yeah, yeah, no, it's—it's it's been crazy to see the price of uh, of our books inflate remarkably. Um, sort of wish I had bought more books, but then again, <laughs> you can't take it with you, right? I have a friend who's who's been involved in occultism for about the same length of time as me, and he sort of um, grew weary of it all and has 
you know, moved on in his, in his mind to other places. And he literally spent, you know, several years just selling off his books and, you know, basically living off of that because they were so expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was planning to do that at some point, but things change. Um, I was curious to talk to you about, um, scrying that was brought up in the, the master class. Um, and you talk about in your notes, uh, about how the Golden Dawn didn't use much mirrors or crystal balls. Um, yes. I assume, of course, you mean the inner order, because of course, in the outer order, that stuff didn't really get done at all. Very, very little. Very little was in the original Golden Dawn's outer order. There wasn't much material at all. And, sure. No, it was. It was. It was basically a memorization club. Yeah. And uh, it, it's interesting because I mean, it still is to a large extent. If there's a little bit more added into it by you know, sort of people pulling things out of Alistair Crowley's work and then developing their own things here and there. But, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's hard to say exactly what everybody was doing, but if we take the word of say the sphere group, which, which has been published and the flying rolls, uh, that, that, uh, you know, are are pretty readily, uh, those are for anyone who doesn't know what the heck I'm talking about. They're like these little papers written by various inner order people, um, giving sort of instructions on on practice they aren't like really official order instructions but they they kind of are um a lot and of good insight the, in the, what's that a lot of good insight in the flying rules yeah i mean i mean it's it's probably some of the most practical stuff <laughs> in the whole system but anyway and and alistair crowley's instructions on the stuff and sort of you know israel regardi's interpretation about like if we, if we kind of take the sum total of that it seems very clear that there were no there was no use of any kind of scrying device whatsoever in the order at all they 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 used you know sort of quasi astral protection as their way of communicating with they also used a lot they also used a lot of tatwas is is the thing i wanted to say and i was wondering maybe um do you have much experience with tatwas because that was extremely yeah. common like wb8 carried around his tatwas with him everywhere sure. he went and that well, was there's, there's some story that, that he that he joined because because one of the one of the guys like whacked him in the forehead with a tatwa and he immediately started having a vision so um that's I, I don't remember where I read that. In, yeah, um, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. The yeah, I mean, the, the Tatwa visions are. I mean, that's really essentially one of my main techniques that I teach is a is a variation on that for for um, visionary work. And again, it's a variation that we can find sort of in the work of Alistair Crowley. He doesn't he doesn't really address it as um, clearly as uh, he could, but he writes about it here and there. Um, and that is just basically to take any symbol and utilize it as a gateway to uh, a visionary experience. Um, yeah, in exactly I, the way that you do. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, scrying's always been sort of one of my strengths, so it was really interesting for me to hear in the Naki Master course um, all these different methodologies that you, Aaron Leach, and uh, Stenwick presented, uh, and and Leach and Stenwick are admittedly, according to themselves. Uh, not very good at it. So it was really cool to hear about all these different ways that they've used and employed to aid their scrying ability, given that it wasn't one of their natural fortes. I think that's something that people should know about your Anaki Master class, because scrying is very difficult for everyone, I think. Um, maybe not everyone, but... I think I think it's most difficult when you when you think that it's something that it's not, and when you think that it's something unnatural, and you think that it's something that isn't a part of human experience, and so you try and make it something 
you know, more than it actually is. Yeah, our <laughs> you imagination. Know what I mean? like, yeah, our you, you want some experience that, that that completely is different than everything else you've ever had in your life. Whereas it's it's more like a like experiences that you have all the time. You know, dreaming and uh, fantasizing and all that sort of stuff is in the exact same continuum with it. It's just it's just a slightly different use of it and a slightly more um, purposeful use for that kind of um, inner space. We stare at screens so much these days. It, I often think that our imagination has become uh, underdeveloped. Well, um, I don't. I don't think that's actually true. No. I think maybe our our uh, our ability to um, conjure up imagery quickly in our minds may be a little bit stunted from that because so much you know we don't read books anymore we we watch movies about the books um that that obviously it changes your perspective on things and i also think that that there's been you know when i was growing up the only real um uh movies about magic were, were were quite few in number and now we have so many between harry potter and the sort of derivative things from harry potter that have all been turned into movies at this point. We see so much magic. It's everywhere. You know, there was like fantasy. That was the, <laughs> that was the, the kind of idea. What was it? Um, what, what, what did you say? Fantasia. Oh, Fantasia. We had Excalibur. Don't forget Excalibur. Sure. Oh yeah. I mean, there were definitely a few, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's, uh, you know, the, the genre has been around for a while. You know, obviously uh, the, the Lord of the Rings and um, uh, the Hobbit were, were cartoons when I was a kid. I mean, they were broadcast on television pretty frequently. I so loved the cartoon of the, of the Hobbit. The, like, the music by Donovan. I, I was a huge fan of the Hobbit cartoon with the oh, music yeah, track by Donovan. Yeah. It's tough because they animate. I almost wish someone would go in and like sort of remaster it and, and make the animation a little bit more um, consistent. But yeah, it's a it's a beautiful uh, production yeah. between the music and I love I love the the artistry of it. Yeah, you know the I love the way that they that they that they rendered those characters. But it's the the animation's a bit rough. I don't know if you've watched it. Any oh. Recently. oh yeah, yeah. No, it's it's it, it is what it is. <laughs> when I was young in the eighties, though, that was it was it was the best thing ever. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, we had we've moved on, and we've got very, uh, very high quality CGI representations of magic and all that stuff. The Golden Dawn gets mentioned a lot. I watched a, a cheesy comedy on Netflix just last month, and they actually they they the characters end up in some weird theater where they're about to do some big sex thing, and then the guy at the podium's like in the in the tradition of the Hermetic Order, the Golden Dawn, blah blah blah. Like, let's get naked and fuck. And I was like, oh my god. I couldn't well, that, that was actually that was actually a, a, a scandal that took place in the Golden Dawn was was a bunch of stuff about sex because um, uh, both you know Alistair Crowley's behavior and uh, Mathers got involved with someone in, in France that, that kind of uh, created a, a scandal uh, around sex in the order. So and actually, uh, which, a lot which, of. Uh, I mean, the, What's that? Sorry. Uh, well, Barrage, who was he was writing letters to this guy who lived just down the street from where I am now in Santa Rosa, where they had a whole order growing based around sex magic. So they were writing back and forth to encourage the practice of sex magic in in the Golden Dawn from Santa Rosa. Here. Are you talking about? 
Are you talking about uh, Sex Magic or Carezza? I know that was really oh, popular. It's, it's really, it's then. really, yeah, it's really not my field. I, I have never explored Sex Magic, so I, I, I don't know the details. So, I mean, you know, there, there's a few different ways that you can approach using, using sexuality. I mean, first of all, it's, it's, some people say, and I kind of agree, that, that all magic in a way is sexuality because it's that sort of life essence that you're moving around by, you know, no matter what your system is, you're ultimately calling upon these energies that are the sort of energies of, of creation, right? The, so, in a way, all magic has a sexual component to it. For sure. To an um, the, but but, you, but if you're actually using sexuality, you can either conclude with the orgasm. Is this okay? Are we? Are we are, oh yeah. <laughs> this is a oh, show yeah. for the but, okay. uh, You either conclude with the orgasm, or you do not conclude at all with the orgasm, and instead um, sort of carry it on for as long as possible, and and on, only conclude when both are exhausted, and, and you don't ever have an orgasm. So um, both of those things build up magical energy in different ways, um, and I think that. The more popular method at the time, back in, in you know in the very early 20th century, was the you know never coming way, and Crowley and Oto kind of gave a reason for the orgasm being. Yeah, and then Levey had a field day with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Satanic Bible took it to a whole new level. I'm not sure about that. I mean, he just I think he kind of just uh, took it to, or he could take it to. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the foundress of the retreat center I'm at right now, she was very good friends with Le- the Leves, and is the reason they started getting exotic cats in San Francisco back in the day. <laughs> yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, I was turned off at when my friends had the Satanic Bible back in like the early '90s, and. I looked at it. I was like, "Oh, this just seems a little silly." I was I was just getting into the Don Craig book, of course, back then, and you know, on my path to becoming a self-initiated adept within adept within six months. That was my my mission, <laughs> but uh, it didn't work out so well, and so I had to join a, join an actual order. It's hard to do stuff yeah, on I mean, your own. The, the, the thing that threw me off with LeVay more than anything, I mean, I guess I was still probably living in a little bit more of a uh, dualistic world back then when I, when I read that book. So it probably also kind of alarmed me on the, on the point of, you know, oh, it's devilly stuff. But uh, the fact that he took the um, Enochian calls and, and turned, you know, just rewrote wrote them into satanic things, <laughs> that, that sort of rubbed me the wrong way. No doubt. <laughs> you know. I was aware of what they were, so. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the chanting of uh, Shem Ham Mefresh, I mean, literally the idea of chanting, like, could you imagine if, if I went and vibrated name of 72? Like, what? What? It's a description, not a magic well, word like abracadabra or hocus pocus. Yeah, I mean, if you look at if you look at all the old magical stuff, they're, they're most likely, you know, um, corruptions of of other things that may or may not be just what you're talking about you know i mean magic has has almost always been a um oh sorry i'm looking for a a, a consolidating force that, <laughs> that brings that brings uh, together a lot of disparate things and and gives them new uses and keeps their life going past where they might have disappeared um you know that 
the Greek magical fire are very fascinating because they like there's there's clearly kind of a method to the madness if you if you kind of spend some time with it. But I mean, there there is so much stuff from disparate sources, you know, from Egyptian, Greek, um, the uh, Persian. Hebrew, Christian, all that stuff, all sort of blended together in, in, in single spells quite often. But um, you know, they were they were taking words of power. They were things there were things that they knew other people had attributed power to, and so they said, "This is going to work for me too. I'm going <laughs> to just going to stick them all in here." Sometimes they'll even list it that way. They'll be like, "This is this is your name in the Phoenician. This is your name in the blah blah blah." Yeah, yeah. Um. Have you thought ever much about the similarities between I've always wanted to ask this from someone who might actually have have thought about it more or know something I don't know the similarities between speaking in tongues and the barbarous names of evocation well i don't i I don't think that they're necessarily totally separate from each other in some cases um uh, because i because yeah i mean that the 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 more general term for um uh, speaking in tongues is glossolalia, and that is most likely where some of those, uh, particularly the long strings of vowel sounds, come from. Although there are a lot of formulas in there where they'll you know, be like A, A, E, 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 I, 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 you know, so it, it grows. I mean, that's a little bit more consciously created, but the, yes, I think there there is a connection there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, because when I first thought of it, I was like, am I crazy? Maybe I thought, I thought that maybe I, my, assumption my my line of thinking could be flawed based on a lack of knowledge of the barbarous names have you worked much with barbarous names in, in your personal work yes actually quite a bit and um, i mean in fact in in the, my my first sort of inclusion of stuff is is the obviously the um what crowley called the bornless one that everyone now likes to call the stele of jew or or the uh, headless one ritual but um well the bornless the, ritual uh, is a big part of golden dawn inner order work uh, no, most likely not in the actual order because it was published in 1904. So, I mean, I, I guess it's a little bit post-schism with, within the order, but I doubt because it's, it's got Mather's name on it. So I, I don't, I don't think that it would have been, you know, th those were like, okay, so what was going on in publishing? This is something I've been studying recently too. I got it. I'm such a awesome. nerd. Um, yeah, give the, us some new stuff, brother. <laughs> There was there was a there was a fascinating um, group of texts that were being that were being um, published at that time, and if you look at Crowley's output, uh, particularly his early output, you can see that he was reading these things. So they were obviously being sort of handed out within the order. One of them is the Sacred Magic of Robert Mail and the Mage, obviously, um, which I think uh, Mathers published literally the year Crowley joined, like 1898. But the, but with it with from I think 1892 to maybe 1902 or something like that, there were a bunch of little books that came out. Um, they were called the uh, Collectinea Hermetica. Um, Westcott was the uh, head scholar or whatever of them all, but, the, but they, were, they were put together by various people. Um, and I was just reading recently uh, Florence Farr's one, which is called Egypt Magic. Yeah, yeah, I know it well. Um, and so that that book uh, contains uh, some interesting stuff from something called the Harris Magical Papyri. This is a, this is another book that you can't get your hands on for uh, the English translation of it for more than for less than a few hundred dollars. But um, 
it's it's a it's a papyrus that uh, this amateur Egyptologist who found a bunch of uh, papyri and eventually donated them to the British Museum or sold them to them. Um, it, it contains a, a number of magical spells. One of which, the way that the the French translator translated it, 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 it was uh, used, utilized this thing called "Arise, dog of evil," and um, you know, protect me in these various ways. Well, Crowley took almost that exact section and put it into his um, uh, Barksabelle evocation working that he published in the Equinox. So, um, which apparently he did with one of his students or some of his students. But so anyway, the, uh, the, the, the French actually could be interpreted in multiple ways, but it was translated into English, most likely from that French book rather than from the original hieroglyphs by Florence Farr, Farr into a rise dog of evil and Curly took that exact phrase out of there and did it into his. So, I mean, like, someone could argue with me, but I would, I would say that Curly read Farr's book and thought it sounded neat and put it into his, into his ritual rather than that Curly was in the British Museum translating hieroglyphs and came to the same conclusion, a rise dog of evil himself, as well as the fact that he, he, very much elaborates on it and adds a bunch of different stuff that isn't in the original, but it still contains that phrase, arise dog of evil, which apparently could be translated in a number of ways, like, like fear wolf. It could be as well. Crowley wrote the Horus invocation, didn't he? What? Crowley wrote that Horus invocation with Abrahadabra and stuff. Yes, he yes. wrote. He, he he wrote. He wrote a bunch of invocations of various um, uh, in, in various layers. I think that um, uh, what's his name? His uh, magical tutor was in the order uh, that he lived with for a little while. Who went on to become a Buddhist? His Bennett. name's yeah, escaping Bennett. me at the moment. Alan Bennett. What? Alan Bennett. Alan Bennett. Yeah. yeah. I think Bennett actually probably wrote some of that just from. The, the way that it appears, it seems, it, it seems to, um, to me, it just feels a little bit more Benedy to me for some reason. But. I do use it, and actually, oh. when I was uh, when I first uh, was uh, give did a term, you know, a six month term in the role of Hyrus at Temple Tehuti, I was handed the Horus invocation to use in my God form and preparatory work for the initiation, which. I found interesting because generally we were quite anti-Crowley and I've never been a huge fan of Crowley, though I do appreciate who he is and what he has done, especially as I read more of his autobiography as an, uh, an adult instead of as a child. Sure. Well, I mean, the thing about Crowley is that when you first encounter him, you can be a little alarmed by him and then you start to go, oh, no, this is actually a really cool guy. And then you, then you dig deeper and you go, oh, wait, no, this guy's a total psycho asshole. And then you dig deeper and you're like, no, he actually really is pretty brilliant. <laughs> and you go back and forth on him throughout your life if you um, spend time in his company. It's, it's almost <laughs> like uh, he was a dynamic, complex human being. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, he definitely had his... I, I mean, I, I'm not going to be a, an apologist for him. He had, he had some pretty serious flaws, um, both personally and, and socially. So, um, not that we don't all have those to an extent ourselves, but his he uh, he wore them on his sleeve in ways that I think are not necessarily all that helpful. Yeah. And, and actually, yeah, no. Uh, I mean, 
continue. It's, this is this is a somewhat unpopular and dangerous thing to say, but like you know, modern witchcraft really wouldn't exist without Alistair, without Aleister Crowley. Well, we all um, know that, but just don't say it too loud, or you'll lose some uh, <laughs> some of your audience, right? No, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think my audience is really amongst people who are uh, you know true believers in, in Wicca. So, um, w- without having any uh, negative feelings towards them at all, I just I, they're just not too comes around me for some reason maybe because of my opinions but <laughs> yeah well i uh, yeah no it's it's undeniable the the evidence has been long in so uh, yeah what what do you consider some of crowley's greatest contributions in your opinion well i mean because you're, you're sort of a GD slash OTO guy, and I actually don't think there's many of that. We weren't allowed to admit anyone in who was in the OTO into our order, um, which I, That's so in, interesting. In, in retrospect, I, I I did a major 180, and I think I'm one of the few, like, sort of ex-chief type GD people who actually has changed their tune about OTO and Thelema, and I think we should have let people in, because I didn't understand what Thelema and the OTO actually was, not fully. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I lived in an OTO house with my mom, and then in 2009, I lived in Belfast at an oasis uh, when I moved in with my Irish girlfriend there, and they actually had me start teaching them GD curriculum, and I was like, this is crazy. They're like, well, we actually don't teach this stuff in the OTO, and we would love to learn it. And I was like, so all these AA adepts were having me teach their OTO oasis, and they had no problem with any of the stuff I was teaching. I was like, that, re- that experience really changed me, you know? And these were really good, cool people I was hanging out with. And I mean, you know, it's it's too small of a world for there to be that many fractures. I mean, the, the difference between a, a, a Crowley person and a, and a Golden Dawn person is essentially that a Crowley person is a little bit more, you know, do what that will, she'll be the whole law in their life in one way or another. <laughs> Well, um, I did some Anarchian yeah. work with Lon, Lon Duquette, and he explained to me, he's like, look, OT, and he took me to my first Gnostic Mass on the anniversary of the Book of the Law a couple years ago with Chris Bennett, and he explained to me, he's like, look, OTO and Thelem is a religion, Crowley's the saint, and I was like, okay, so my new perspective really developed into the Golden Dawn shouldn't be discriminating people based on the religion, and so if someone who's Thelema OTO wants to come and train in the, the school of the Golden Dawn and learn the curriculum and graduate and all that, why not? Especially, like, but the, the only caveat should be, like, don't go around talking about Crowley, 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 because he's your saint, He's this is your religion, just like we would say to a Wiccan or a Catholic, don't go around just talking about Jesus and the Triple Goddess all the time. Sure. Like, that's not what we're here for. We're here to study the curriculum. So that's my that was the, my my evolved opinion on these things. Yes, and uh, and it's uh, Crowley's version of the Golden Dawn, which he saw as a uh, fixing of the inherent problem in the Golden Dawn, which was we just went over the fact that you just spent the first bunch of time just re- you know memorizing things and not really doing anything. But Crowley's version of it, he he changed sort of a few of the grades, the way that they function. Um, and it, his, his thing is actually an interesting synthesis. He basically takes the um, the eight limbs of yoga and sticks them into the tree of life um, in, into your into your you know path from neophyte to adept. And he you know gives practices that relate to each of the paths on the tree of life. So um, the path of Tao is the, the is working on scrying 
you know, because you're moving into the inner space and the path of noon is sort of like, you know, accepting the, the death and rebirth that, that takes place, um, you know, as you transition into adepthood and so forth. So, I mean, you know, he, he, he gives sort of, a, I think, I think the practice that he actually has you do is sort of basic Buddhist meditation for that one. Um, so, I mean, he, he basically took the tree of life and made it a little bit more practical. And that's actually what, what my, what my first new hermetics work was about kind of bringing that into the 21st century, that idea of making the tree of life something that you're actually practically working in terms of well path you know. working is a huge part of the golden dawn system i mean doing the actual practices of path working as you go through the grades on the tree of life is is a is a big deal is a big deal right but that's a, that's more of a visionary practice as opposed to thinking what is the lesson of this path and actually trying to do practices that kind of bring that lesson into experience okay that's interesting that's an interesting nuance I haven't considered. Huh. And actually, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that pathworking really had anything to do with the original order. I think that that might be a, a little bit more of a modernism. Well, so when people, some people, when they talk about the original order, they mean up until 1900. When I talk about the original order, I think of it in terms of that <laughs> plus the two branches, AO and SM, that broke off thereafter. Sure. And the reason I do that well, is because Yates was a major player in the Stella Matutina, right? But the whole time after the schism, he was still working with Mathers and Moina, even though they were Alpha at Omega, right? He was still going to Paris. He was right. still writing back and forth with them, primarily working on the Celtic mysteries. And so I, I realized, especially going through all those letters of Yeats and Moina and Mathers, um, that that there wasn't quite as stark a uh, division as we'd like to think. And I think we get the idea that there was this stark, this total destruction and then this uh, stark division. I think we get a lot of that from Crowley's polemics. Well, yeah, I mean, he, his intention was for, for the whole thing to dissolve and it all to reform around him, which is basically what he <laughs> tried to do with the OTO as well. And, and in either case, was he wholly successful? There are actually still, as far as, at least there were. I'm not sure what, what you know what 2020 brings us, but um, <laughs> the, the, the original version of OTO still was existent in Europe uh, 20 years ago, at least. So, um, and the uh, original version of the Golden Dawn has obviously managed to, in one way or another, stay stay alive. Yeah. The whole time. Huh. Yeah, it's uh, it's it is what it is, right? Um, are you are you much familiar with the the, the continuation through uh, the Fade Ra tradition? Um, that does not sound like something that I know what you're talking uh, the, about. The so. New Zealand group, you know, Nick Farrell and all of oh, them, oh, Pat oh, Zalewski. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Where Where Ra. Yeah. And, and what what of it? Oh, are you are you much familiar with? The, how the practices as they continue to develop and uh, evolve sort of through that branch. Um, yeah, I mean, in the, in that I've read uh, some Zalewski books, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Other than what, that, no. what do you think of Zalewski's uh, writings? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, one of the challenges that I have with a lot of, and this, and this gets back to what I was talking about with doing, doing practices that sort of relate to, you know, worldly practices there's a lot of in a, in a lot of occult writing there's symbols pointing at symbols pointing at symbols 
rather than there ever being a thing that, that can, and it's, and it's not that it's pointing towards something, you know, like a, a divine form that, <laughs> that is being elucidated. Instead, it's just sort of a circle of symbols, if you know what I mean. Um, and I, and I, it's been a while since I've read Zelensky's books, but um, that's, that's sort of a general note that I would give to almost all Western occult books is that they, there's a lot of fat on, on the bone in, in them. Um, in, in stuff that it, it seems like it's more just a colorful way of saying something that could be said in just a few words, really. You know, be nice to each other. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we the the transcendent itself is only sort of crudely represented by any sort of symbol system. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a you know we talk about let's take Venus for for an example. There's a bunch of things that point to Venus from you know the Netzach and the Tree of Life to um, you know the love of Aphrodite to the sort of creativity of the um, Venus as a planet in astrology. But like experiencing any one of those things in a transcendent way and in, in, in a way where you're sort of connecting with its intelligible essence rather than it's, you know, outward symbol. It, 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 it no longer feels like that symbol is enough for the actual experience. And I feel like often in occult literature, I'm, I'm left feeling like they're just talking about the symbol without, without really making all that much reference to that transcendent space. I, that, really, I think that's a great insight actually. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, that's why, I mean, I try my hardest. Um, I have a little group of people who are, some of which are in orders, some of which are independent. It's basically a Patreon group where I try and help people on the self-initiation path slash people who have no access to temples and just really do want to do the work. So I, I try and guide as best I can. Um, and uh, I, the main, the hardest thing is to just get people to just do the practice right? Like do it, uh, do it regularly, keep your diary and all of that. And it, it really does grow from there. Like the, the best rituals I do now are ones that I learned from spirits that I worked with. Right. I, I don't know if you're similar, but like, you know, there's the tradition behind us that I draw from, but there's also the things you get taught by working with spiritual beings. Or just your, an insight that happens as you're, um, working through something. Oh, I think it would be better if it went this way instead. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But, uh, but that is a challenge in everything. It's not just a cultism. <laughs> it's a challenge in, in, you know, anything from learning a language to learning to, you know, be an athlete or any, any kind of um, activity that isn't absolutely required for one's living becomes very difficult for most people to engage in. And I think, I think people need to be forgiven for that to a certain extent, simply because we aren't really trained in our, in our culture to be very disciplined in any way. You know, discipline is always sort of pressed upon us from outside a little bit, not even that much in any, you know, in comparison with previous generations, we're a pretty lazy group. But I mean, I, I heard, um, are you still there? Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm listening okay. very closely. My, my, my phone, a light just came on my phone, so making sure we didn't get disconnected. Understood. But, um, I remember uh, some self-help guru mentioned that there was a statistic that 
that most books, most self-help books are, are only 10% of them are ever read. So, so if you write a 200 page book, you should probably put as much as you can in the first 20 pages because that's all it's a, that most people are ever going to see. Lesson to everyone out there for who's thinking of writing a book. Well, right? that's, yeah. And in fact, there are a lot of writers who actually, it's, I think it's a, it's a bit of a boring way to write a book, but they do that. They do just that. Sorry, if you did, uh, something has happened to your voice now where it's gone into a distant telephone mode. Uh-oh. What, what happened? Damn, this is, this is good stuff, too. Um, Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Are we? We're back. Okay. Awesome. I think I think the problem is that one of my 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 daughter I think was trying to call, so she kind of huh. interrupted the call today. The meddling. Kids. So. What? <laughs> meddling kids. Yeah. Damn those meddling kids. <laughs> um. But I, I, you know, we. Uh, we need to sort of be forgiving about that fact and we need to forgive ourselves about that fact that, that, yeah, we're going to, we're going to start things and we're going to stop. And it's not, it's important not to, not to just let the fact that you stopped for a while, stop you altogether, you know, and realize that maybe, you know, just, I like to think of it like exercise. Like if you, if you, if you, you know, you, you do uh, martial arts. So, you know, if you stop working out for six months, something like that, you're going to lose a lot of your ability. Right. But, if you get back into it and then just you know train, do some a little bit of remedial training, you'll get back to where you were more quickly than it took you to get there in the first place. So there's really no reason to stop just because you stopped. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. I find that I, I think I think there's a thing in people's minds, and maybe you can share this with your with your your Patreon friends um, that once you stop doing something, and I guess I should just quit because I because I I didn't do it for a while. Yeah. You know, that people just want to give up. And I think that's, you know, it's like that, uh, the ritual of the, the hexagram, the Isis, Apophis, Osiris, you know, you're, you're in that Apophis stage. You just gotta get, get going to the next one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wiser words. Yeah. But it's not really my wisdom. No, but. it's, it's the formula. It's the I A I A O. Yeah. Um, great. I uh, my main form of scrying actually, scrying actually is um, you might get a kick out of this uh, is a copper scrying bowl that I pounded out of a piece of copper 20, 25 years ago, and I fill it with water. Oh, that's great, Nostradamus style, and and that's what I I still uh, like to use. Though I also find the obsidian mirror methods um, very useful. Um, I uh, when I my first big Golden Dawn event was in 97, and Poke Runyon was there presenting his newly released Cypher Manuscript book. And uh, to learn the techniques from him were very, very useful. Do you have much uh, thoughts on his uh, view of uh, physical appearance in the uh, Obsidian Mirror? Um, okay, honestly, I came to that basic technique through Donald Craig, who I understand actually sort of swiped it from... from uh, <laughs> from from the uh, running, so yeah, they're um, all friends. 
more or less. What's that? They were all friends, essentially. Sure, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a little, there was a little bit of, I mean, you know, uh, Don has passed, and, and I'm sure <laughs> Poke is no longer feeling frustrated, but I, I, I remember seeing some sort of frustrated message from him about it. But anyway, um, I, I, I encountered the technique, and I thought it was interesting. I mean, it's basically the same thing as, like, the Bloody Mary game that you play in the in the mirror. But I actually found that my own face was a big distraction to me, and, and I was much happier when I just tilted the, the, the black surface upwards so that I was just looking at something blank. Mm. <laughs> that was much more effective for me. Um, so, I mean, you know, my mileage with the exactitudes of that technique was not very good, but, but I, but I found the, the basic premise of it useful, um, as a, as a way of, you know, approaching, um, visionary spaces. This, you know, since then I've, I've done personally, probably, you know, tens of thousands of, of um, scrying sessions and I've taught a bunch of workshops to people of varying skills including someone who was like I don't I don't ever see images in my mind whatsoever um, <laughs> I was like what do you mean and and, um, and, I, and I've gotten pretty much everyone to at least be able to, to somewhat get a sense of scrying uh, pretty easily so I know it's a it's a it's a pretty fundamental human ability um, like you said, possibly slightly damaged by our constant screen time. But, well, um, Rudolf Steiner wrote endlessly and lectured endlessly about the importance of the imagination. So I grew up with a, well, in, in Waller school, they don't teach kids to read until grade three or, uh, because Steiner believed that the emotional aura hadn't fully developed. And if you teach them to read early, their emotional aura becomes stunted and their imagination doesn't fully develop. I mean, I, I'm basically with you on that. I, I was an early reader, but uh, or with uh, Steiner on that idea. I mean, I think I think forcing kids to do tasks is um, often quite uh, bad for them. Whereas when you allow their inner genius to blossom as it wants to, they they thrive much more. Um, and I, you know, I mean, and this is coming I'm, from a I'm father, not, so I'm gonna. I, I am a parent, but I but I I'm not going to pretend that I'm the greatest parent in the world in every way. But it's, you know, not, it's the, not like the, you put your kids the, in commercials or anything, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not exactly um, they, uh, you're not like Macaulay Culkin's parents, right? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my my their 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 uh, maternal grandmother was kind of annoyed with me for doing that because I put them in oh. both of those commercials. I, I don't know if you saw that uh, oh. the circle as well. But, oh, there's another uh, commercial. There, yeah, it's a commercial for my for my circle cloths that I I've love, made. I love your circle cloths. I can't wait to get a few of them once I'm, uh, you know, in a secure environment again. Yeah, I'm really. Well, I do. I I, I will. I, when is this going to be live? Because I don't want to. I don't want to advertise for things that aren't going to be available. But I do. I do currently have a a fifty percent off sale going on those things. So. Oh really? Um, on all of them, hey. What's that? On the circles, on the floor circles. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, your website is newhermetics.com, right? That is probably the easiest one. The easiest thing to do would be to sign up for my mailing list on newhermetics.com, and then you'll start getting my my uh, promotions. I almost, I'm almost always promoting something or other, so throughout the year, if there's anything that you like that I have, it'll probably be pretty heavily discounted at some point. Yeah, well, that's, um, that's the way to do it, right? Um, 
Yeah. I think uh, I think it's such a blessing that you have uh, created the line of products that you have, that you've, you've put so much time to developing them, making them available, and often quite affordable. Um, I mean, we would I think the magical world would be, would be a lot poorer without you having done all that. So I really hope people do become aware, more aware of you and, and, and support what you're doing there because if you weren't doing what you're doing, someone would need to do what you're doing, in my opinion. Well, I think other people are starting to do it, but I've actually, you know, I've been making uh, magical objects for um, 24 years, I think, at this point. Yeah. Um, I've been making a, a, a wax sigillum de MF um, that I used to sell through the Azure Green catalog. Do you still and I used make to those? make... Uh, I used to make uh, plaster uh, Egyptian statue LAs and a few other things through them. So, do you still make um, the sigillums, like hand hand carve them and stuff? Uh, I do. I still have them uh, on eBay and my website. Um, I mean, chances are, if you if you have ever seen Sigillum's <laughs> AMF, there's a pretty good chance that it was made by me. Um, I mean, there's a few other guys doing it at this yeah. point, but we made our I've, own tools I've, in our order, and I'm a big fan of making my own tools. But some things I I can't make, like uh, the 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 altar, the floor claws, and I really I re I'm absolutely going to get your uh, your portable vault one day, as well as your complete Anakian set once I'm settled again. All, all most of my tools in library were stolen a few years ago, sadly. Um, oh no! So yeah, oh yeah! Yeah. I, I've talked about that enough, so uh, I don't want to get into it now. But yeah, it's all right. I consider it part of my alchemy, you know. Um, maybe my higher genius is just removing the distractions from what I need to do. Who knows? I like to rationalize it. Otherwise, it's just too fucking painful. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, that that uh, that that portable vault is interesting. I I, I designed it kind of just because I thought it was a fun idea, um, and really and it idea. sat for. It's out for like almost two years, and no one, no one had ordered it. But I think there's about ten of them out in the world at this point. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Well, more. Yeah. And and the interesting thing is, you, you I mean, like it's it's designed so you can like put it up as sort of tapestries, but you can also attach it to boards and make it you know a little bit more on the permanent side. So. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I don't know that. I don't know how others have put them together, but. Uh, yeah, it is. It's it's a. I remember I, I had a student who was going through my my course, and he was creating. Uh, he was in a Golden Dawn group, and he was creating his Vault of the Adepts at the time. And it basically took him the entire time that he was taking my course to make his Vault of the Adepts. Yep. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe I should be making something like that. It would make it a little easier. Although, I mean, you know, there is. There is, uh, you know, some. I mean, I, I think the, the the best thing about making your own tools is not even so much that that you've that you've made it yourself. Because I think that's ultimately that sort of ego. Yeah, but no, that, what's what people say about making your own tools is that you learn stuff while you're making it. You, know, you learn stuff about the, you learn about the symbols, you, and and not only in like a logical uh, left brain way, but just in a right brained way from from creating something with it. Yeah, you know. So yeah, well, like I had, uh, to, but, yeah. I had to make my own rose chloros lamen uh, after getting my five six initiation and. And, you know, like I did, I, I had had the experience of making my other tools and some of them I was more or less, less or more happy with, but I worked with them so much, like I could never imagine replacing them with one that's quote unquote better, you know, right. like my fire wand doesn't have the, the metal in the middle. And at the time I was very uh, much a believer of, 
I was very anti-materialist and thought it was most important to have the tools as symbols for an astral reality, whereas now I have a much more materialist view of spirit and nature as one. And so now I'm like, oh, I sort of wish I had had that, that you know, the metal in it. But I'm not going to redo it because what's cool about it is I've been working with it, that tool, for over 20 sure. years, right? That's what's cool yeah. about it. And, um, you know. I've got a wand that is like, it's a totally silly thing. It's, it's from this uh, old Llewellyn book that it, it's a it's a copper rod with hollow with uh, leather wrapped around it and a crystal in it and oh, it's, cool. it's supposed to be like an Atlantean, Atlantean tool and <laughs> um, I doubt the book exists anymore but maybe it does I think it's called Crystal Magic but um, the I made it you know when I was a you know teenager a young teenager and I had it for I mean I guess it's probably over 30 years old this point and at a certain point when i was getting more interested in the golden dawn i actually painted it red and then put some put all the um you know hebrew divine names of fire and the angel i can barely see it on here but i'm looking at it right now oh nice but yeah this is a i mean a totally non-traditional tool <laughs> but, but i wouldn't i wouldn't I wouldn't want it any other way. Yeah, awesome. I'm just getting into making some of my own custom-made tools, actually. I, I was just hiking in the Redwoods for the first time since I've, I've been here over a year now in Cali, and I got to go to the Redwoods today finally and picked up a bunch of different woods, and I found an amazing staff piece of wood from a Redwood that uh, one of the guys on the property, he's a master carver, and I'm a hobbyist carver. I have a carpenter father, so mm -hmm. I love carving, but this guy's top-notch master one like he even has a big gandalf head he's like 80 years old but he's got a big gandalf head with the mouth carved out and you can put a joint in it and then there's a hole that goes up to the top of the gandalf hat and you smoke this the weed out of the top of the hat <laughs> uh so i i look forward to picking up some tricks as i carve this staff and uh yeah i'm working on the tools and initiatory weapons for yates's initiations of the in the order of celtic mysteries yeah, I mean that sounds that sounds pretty interesting. I'd love to talk to you about that at some other point. Maybe maybe I should do an interview of you at some point. Absolutely, I it's 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 such a pleasure to talk to you. I've been aware of you for forever, and I don't know why I never reached out sooner. I guess I wasn't doing this sort of podcasting thing or whatever. But uh, during the quarantine, I was like, I need to get seriously back into this. And it, it let's let's face it, it has helped my book sales, which dropped by ninety percent in their royalties during since COVID. Right, like we've all been hit pretty hard. Ouch. Yeah, well, that's the economy's not, uh, you know, I'm sure you've noticed it a little bit. <laughs> um, well, you yeah. know, not, not that much. Awesome. I've kind of got, um, I've kind of got a lot, a lot of stuff going on, so, <laughs> like, it, 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 things shift in, in my, um, income from time to time, but because I have such a wide group of things out there, it all ends up bouncing out. You have like, a diversified I have a, I have a business, portfolio. I have a I mean, business partner, he's like, I don't understand how it always comes out to the same or more, but we literally never, like, there's no, nothing is predictable, but it's like, it always comes in. That's amazing. Um, well, yeah, you, under, you understand things like, you know, marketing, uh, email marketing, all of these things. A lot of people don't understand. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty bad at all that stuff. I wish I was better. Eh, yeah, well, I think you're doing okay. I've, You've definitely been at it long enough to have built up a very large base of people right 
I mean, it, you know, it's funny. It, it comes and goes. The, the, you know, it's uh, as you mentioned. You know, people people get excited about things and then they and then they disappear. So, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I've got a humongous following at all. I think I just have a I have a um, a wide enough footprint that um, people find me and become interested in the things that I do. Uh, and then, you know, they, they move on to other things or they stay with me for forever <laughs> or, you know, but it, it, it's a, it's a, it, an undulating sea of things. It's not, it's not like it's, it's hugely growing. It's more things are coming in and going out constantly like a, like the membranes of a cell, you know, things come in <laughs> as they need to balance things out. Yeah, for sure. For sure. One thing I wanted to talk to you about, uh, was, based on the Anakian Magic Master class, which again, again, very grateful that I got to do that finally. Oh, to be honest, brother, um, as you know, we were meant to podcast a couple weeks ago along with the psychedelic historian I was doing. I'd, I'd had a, my whole day planned out perfectly and shit hit the fan. I had my room broken into and then things got really crazy here, but that's not a big surprise because the world's gone slightly nuts. And so I apologize for that delay and thank you for your patience and uh, appreciate it. But um, as a result... I missed the last day six of I missed Stenwick's day six lecture and I missed the the day seven wrap up because it timed out so I didn't actually finish the course I guess you could call me a flunky of the master class <laughs> honestly I think you can just go back and watch it I mean I, yeah. I, I I don't think that you're blocked from it at all so if you just if you just go you know, to the to the link to it, it should just open up, and yeah, you should be able to. No, I tried and tried for days. I clicked the links in the emails. It said it just wanted. It said I had to get the course again. I think there is a time limit on how long you can access the information. Uh, I, okay. Well, I mean, I don't want to get into this too yeah, much right now, but no. <laughs> I'm, that is not the way that it's supposed to be. And I'll, I'll make sure that you that you can get back from there. Don't worry about well, it. That'd be that'd be cool. Yeah, um, it's definitely great. So one of the things that that I really thought was interesting was. Um, and that you didn't seem to take a stand on this was Leach gave a, a exposition about the presence and continuous use of psychedelics within the magical traditions. And then Stenwick came out saying that under no circumstances does he think psychedelics should be used with magic, especially scrying. And that he also even went so far as to say John D and Edward Kelly never used psychedelics, especially not sure. for magic. And I'm curious where you stand on that subject. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I think psychedelics are, are an incredibly important part of uh, humankind's spiritual unfoldment. I don't, I don't know that everybody needs them. Um, some people are, are more naturally inclined to be connected with alternate ways of looking at things. Um, I think particularly people who are have trouble with things like visionary states and stuff like that, um, uh, entheogens can be extremely useful. Uh, in, all, in, in, my, in my early publishing... I kept including little sections on it, and the publisher kept saying, um, you, you, we, "We really can't put this in because yeah. <laughs> we, we can't we can't encourage people to do illegal things." Uh, and so, uh, if they are mentioned in either of my three books with wiser books, they, they would only be very much in passing. But I think in in the book of Magic Power, I mentioned it a little bit more, um, and I. There's definitely a section in sexual sorcery uh, that that there was about um, entheogens because those were actually very significant to Crowley in a lot of ways. So, um, well, yeah, uh, that that 
that got extracted out of there. So uh, I might have published it somewhere else. I can't remember, honestly. But yeah, um, antigens uh, are gate openers. They are they can be you know, sort of like utilized as a kind of a spirit helper. You know, you can literally have marijuana or mushrooms be a spirit that you're working with consistently. Um, most modern people who do that seem more like they're just drug addicts than magicians, but I know that in, in uh, that does different happen. cultures. What's that? That does happen. Um, but in, in other cultures where, you know, it's a, it's a little bit more um, respected, it ends up not being as toxic and, and work, it works out better. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I've done a lot of experiments with them. Um, I think that, that that there are a lot of profound spiritual experiences that, that can be opened up fairly easily with um, even just marijuana, uh, particularly ed- eaten marijuana as opposed to um, smoked. But I I'm, I don't have all that much experience with edibles, uh, you know, where they sort of extract stuff and put them into candies and stuff. So I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily know if that if that would have the same kind of thing. But where you actually cook the the marijuana and eat it, yeah. um, that, that can be a very, very profound spiritual experience that can come from that. Um, but ultimately, the problem with drugs, and this is something that um, uh, Ram Das writes about, is that you, you kind of can, you, you can see the most amazing vistas of consciousness available to you and, and swim around in them and dwell in them and experience them as if they are You've absolutely transformed, but then you go back to being you within a few days, and that that vision becomes a memory and something that you want to get back to, which is ultimately an addictive place to be. You know, indeed. So, indeed. So, so have you seen? You know, have you actually done scrying sessions or Enochian work with, for example, like psilocybin? Um, not. Enochian work, no. Um, I, I don't. I don't know that. I think that really structured ritual works that well for me with with um, uh, entheogens. More just sort of, you know, a ritual at the beginning and just sort of let it see where it goes. After that, is have been more my practice uh, over the years. It's not something that I really have have been doing for you know. 20 years or so. Oh, right. So I don't, I don't, yeah, probably a little less than that, maybe 18 years. Um, so it's not, it's not something that's a part of my regular everyday practices. Yeah. Well, I don't um, think it should be part of anyone's everyday practices. <laughs> well, it, it is part. I mean, there, there, I can tell you, I could, I could think off the top of my head of 10 or 20 people who, you know, uh, ceremoniously partake of their, their marijuana and then start doing their LBRP and whatnot after that. So I guess more yeah, power to I'm, them. Do what thou so, do what thou wilt, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is it is thelmans mostly. <laughs> <laughs> there we have it. There's the rub. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna. I don't, I don't think that necessarily should be because there's also a lot of uh, shamanic and other folks who do that same sort of stuff as well. So it's For not sure. just thelmans. Um. But, uh, so what, what blew me away was uh, last uh, year, March tw- uh, 2019, 
I was doing a series of lectures at John D. and Edwards Kelly's Tower in Prague. And uh, I got special access to the, the rooftop of the tower where you can look out and see all through the, through the openings in the tower above their study and ritual chamber and alchemy lab um, and see all of Prague around you. And uh, I, got to, I went there and did the call of the portal. And uh, I actually stumbled over the words for the first time ever because halfway through it, I basically got smacked in the head, you know, you know what I mean by that, I'm sure, by a voice, the presence of not just an angel, but numerous saying, yo, we're here. You don't need to do all that stuff <laughs> because of where you're at. And I had never had such strong instant contact in such a visceral way ever. And it was remarkable. But the point of the story is, while, while I was looking at the, you know, the very touristic display that they have for, for the, you know, the, the, for the punters, as it were, um, in the lab, there's this garden. They have a, a vegetable garden, as they call it. And I asked the tour guide, I was like, what's that about? And, and she said, oh, well, sometimes, you know, servants wouldn't be able to get them food right away or they'd want snacks when they were doing their alchemy late at night in the evening. So they would have this garden so they could get some, 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 something to eat. And I was like, then why is everything that's in the display of this garden just consist of Amanita mascaria mushrooms? And she was like, oh, okay, well, and she was like, well, it was just for food. If they couldn't get food from the servants, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you said that. I'm like, but this is recreated because when they, when, when the scholars went and excavated the study and they recreated it in, in the way that it, what they could tell it was set up. And they did a, a lot of work to actually replicate it very authentically as much as they could. So there was a mushroom garden that Dee and Kelly kept in their tower of psychedelic mushrooms. And I just couldn't believe that they would say, oh no, these weren't for psychedelic or magical purposes at all. It was just for food. That made no sense to me. You said Amanita muscaria. So you mean the, the, the mushroom that has the, the red cap? Uh, maybe, with the maybe it's the other, maybe I'm confusing that name with the other psychedelic one. I'm not actually an expert on mushrooms per se. So, so, but, so they had a, a mushroom garden, let's just call it. Let's just call it a mushroom mm -hmm. garden. But that's all that, that was growing there. And they're like, that's all they did grow there. They know that the, all they grew up in the tower, the only thing that living thing they grew were mushrooms. And they said it was for snacks. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, that's, that, seems, that seems highly unlikely. But at the same time, it's, it's, it, I'm not like, okay, so, so first of all, I, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not an expert on the history of, of um, mushrooms, but I'm pretty sure, and someone can correct me if they want to. The psilocybin cubensis, which is the main one that's, that's utilized, is a New World um, mushroom. Uh, I mean, it may, may have existed elsewhere, but yeah. it was primarily how many areas They actually did exist yeah. in the UK, and they are native to Donegal, Northern Ireland. The Irish people have been eating them up there to get through the Irish winters for fucking forever. So that's something that not everyone knows. And as we know, with psychedelics and all drugs, we've had our histories highly redacted and a lot of that information sure. suppressed. So it's not that shocking that if you go to certain places or talk to certain people, you'll discover information that simply has been purposefully not shared. And so sure. I think that's what I was encountering in their tower. I think I think I mean, Kelly were experimenting. Well, they were didn't, didn't know what they were talking about, right? I mean, there's no way either Amanita muscaria or psilocybin cubensis mushrooms would be a snack under any circumstances. Exactly. They're both just 
So, so anyway, my, my point of view is I think they were, I think they were experimenting with psilocybin while they were doing their Anakian work in Prague. That's what I think. I thought I'd, I wanted to share that with you. I mean, it's, it's certainly interesting. Are, are, have you, have you done mushrooms? Yeah, I do. I do five to 10 grams regularly. Oh yeah. Maybe, maybe we talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, mean, I do a, large like amounts. This, I've, this I've worked a lot with it as part of my spirituality. But I never did any drugs during my entire training in the Golden Dawn for that whole seven years and didn't start experimenting, bringing psychedelics or entheogens into my magical working until my 30s. Interesting. Yeah. No, I wanted yeah, I mean, to go I, through I, magic I, it's uh, actually, sober. I don't think that's, that's not a totally strange journey. I think a lot of people um, you know, come to magic out of more traditionalist religions, which obviously you didn't. But um, and, and so... Like the idea of entheogens comes pretty late in their minds because they, you know, they, they it's just so far from where they were <laughs> to begin with. So um, I think you're in good company starting a little bit later, but I definitely started a lot earlier than that. But um, you know, it was actually intentional on my part. I, I made that decision as a teenager that I wouldn't drink or do drugs until I, you know, till till at least my mid twenties when I had gone through the full magical training as I saw it. Well, I, I made literally the opposite decision. Nothing wrong with that, brother. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Plus, you are a thelemite, at, let's face it, right? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, yeah, only only a very uh, a very reformed thelemite. I don't know. <laughs> the first reformed um, church of Thelema. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that I think that are that he got kind of right on, but I think there's a lot of stuff that you know, that he sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater. So, um, interesting. Well, you're a rare creature because you, because you have golden dawn training and have been through Thelema and all this other experience. I mean, like most adepts, you're very eclectic. So there's no surprise there to me. I mean, I, th- I think that, I don't think that you could, you could really consider yourself to have explored all of this stuff unless you explore as much as you can. I, I, I certainly understand the, the idea of, um, choosing a, a single path, like becoming a, a monk and joining a, you know, a Benedictine order and, and just having that be your whole spiritual life. I understand that path, but in magic, we don't really have that luxury because there's, everything is somewhat fractured. <laughs> so, you know, like there's no, there's no like complete path that has a complete master who can completely take you from the beginning into the end of your spiritual journey. And thank all. God They're for that. Big, Thank God for that, in my opinion. I mean, I think that there's advantages to both. I, I mean, I, obviously, I chose the path I chose. Yeah. <laughs> I could have become a team monk if I wanted to, but, um, you know, that just didn't, it didn't seem like the right thing. Yeah. After the Golden Dawn, I went to seminary and got my Master's of Divinity. In, uh, in what religion? Well, I went in as a Catholic, uh, came out as an Anglican. And uh, then went off to Ireland and England to do uh, my PhD with Dr. Nicholas Goodrick Clark on Evelyn Underhill, Hermeticism and Heresy. Um, but then he died before I could finish it. And I also sort of bailed on it and went part time so I could join a Celtic band and tour for five years full time. So I, I fried my brain on academics and had to change my course at some point. But um, I, I always felt that after doing seven years of GD training, what could be better than like seven years of theological traditional seminary? 
Sure. <laughs> that was my path. So yeah, we all we all take different paths for sure. It's not it's it's you got to follow your own. That's that's the there's no orthodoxy in magic, right? That's the thing. There's no actual that, orthodoxy. That, that was kind of the point I was trying to make is that there's no there's no there's no like grand poobah who tells you everything that, that you can. I mean, there, there are a lot of little grand poobahs who want to tell you everything, but but there's there's no one no one has the full goods, and so you end up sort of having to explore different things to yeah. find who and what you are. Now, don't don't tell and, that to David Griffin. He'll get very upset. <laughs> also, I mean, the thing is, if you look historically at what magic is, um, first of all, it's almost always used in a derogatory light. There's, there's other than the, the Magi <laughs> mentioned in the Bible and a few other historical references to the Persian Magi as a... Um, a, a sect or a race that's it seems to be both um once once the word magic starts being used it's almost always yeah nobody should be doing that it's totally wrong <laughs> like from, from the very earliest times all the way to the 20th century that magic has been viewed as something that is inherently a naughty non-conformist non-correct thing to do so anyone who calls themselves a traditional magician who is coming from the cultural background of you know I mean, we, we basically ultimately are, our, our, our civilization is based on you know, Roman laws with Greek ideals, you know, throughout, throughout our history. Yeah. So anyone who's coming from that perspective is, magic is an inherently, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a personal thing. It's something that there, isn't, there, there never could be an orthodoxy to it because it's, it was inherently <laughs> unorthodox to do it. And that, and that's kind of the whole point. So, you know, every person who's a magician is always an innovator. And you know, if you look at if you look at Dee's work, he was innovating. He was he was saying, I, I, I have all these grimoires. They all kind of say slightly different things. Yeah. I'm just going to ask the spirits themselves. Let's see what they have to say. Exactly. And that's where the <laughs> that's where the uh, the whole Anakian stuff comes from. The same is true of Doctor Rudd. You know, he he said, oh, I got I found this Dee stuff. You know, this, it looks pretty interesting, but how can I combine it with this Goetia and all this other stuff? And, you know, he, he created, or they, if, I think it was probably a group, but, the, you know, people created this other thing. The Golden Dawn then did the same thing with that same material and further developed it. And every person who's doing magic and really even theurgy, um, to an extent, is not really doing a traditional practice. They're doing, they're doing an unorthodox thing to explore regions that are not normally explored by regular, socially, you know, responsible <laughs> citizens. <laughs> I love it. Oh, oh great. Uh, no, it's, it's uh, I mean, it definitely was a lot more popular and quote-unquote mainstream than our historians have been telling us, but it still wasn't de rigueur by any means. Yeah. Here's the thing. It was, yeah, it was, it was everywhere, and always has been everywhere until the, until the um, uh, uh, industrial revolution and, and the you know, sort of scientism of the you know 18th century and beyond. It was everywhere. Everyone was doing magic. You know, you're, you're, every every wife was doing magic. Every and there were professional magicians on every corner. You know, like, like magic was a part of life. It just was illegal. <laughs> you know, yeah. In the same way that you might go to a drug dealer, you go to a magic dealer, and it was always illegal. 
Oh, you're going to like this. So last year also after Prague, I went to lecture in in London and I went to a lecture at the British uh, uh, Museum by a a professor of the Akkadian language, right? So ancient Babylonian and all of that. And he had just published the book based on his doctoral dissertation and presented the main findings. So there's these, there was some tablets written in, uh, in, uh, you know, cuneiform that, uh, that had chunks missing that they found. They found chunks that had been missing from these tablets that, you know, um, gave some new information. And the information was on the legality of magic versus witchcraft. And this is now the oldest document or information we have on the role and legality of magic in culture versus witchcraft. So witchcraft was illegal because it was something you would do to another person. Magic was legal because it was something you did for yourself, to yourself. Right. Well, and and the interesting thing is, if you look at um, medicine for uh, up until probably the 16th century, though, it's, it's pretty hard to see where magic ends and medicine begins. You know, there's a lot of magical elements in, in medicine. <laughs> Homeopathy. Uh, but what's that? Homeopathy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, for sure. That's, that's, that's probably our, our last true magical descendant. And, I mean, people swear by it. Mm-hmm. Even, yeah. even my wife, she doesn't, she doesn't, like, necessarily fully embrace it, but, she, but there are several products that are homeopathic that she swears by, so... Yep. Yeah, Waldorf schools are very big into it. If you uh, were sent to the office for for anything, feeling sick or or anything, they would give you homeopathic pills. Um, Nicholas Goodrick Clark, uh, before he died, my my met my PhD mentor, his wife Claire, a uh, really sweet woman and a homeopath. Um, I have mixed feelings about homeopathy, but my sister had horrible eczema as a child, and they, the homeopath, within a month had it cleared up, and it's never come back. So, I mean, yeah. If that if it if it works, it works, I guess. Whether it's placebo the, or not. On the other hand, there's also a significant amount of, of you know, I mean, it, it's not proof, but the, the you know, it, it, a very confident doctor can give out a sugar pill to a person and have it be something bad. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Are you still there? Yeah, yeah. That would be something that, that works more often than it does, simply because that that doctor is such a charismatic figure that it just it just awakens a healing response in the um, in the client. So yeah. and and the opposite is true. If, if if someone if someone seems disreputable or stupid or no, you know doesn't seem like they know what they're doing, even even good medicines can sometimes not work as well. So. I mean, good medicine—that's a little bit of a you know, medicine that has otherwise been proven to be effective can have less effect. So the, the the nature of the practitioner plays a part in medicine, which which goes back to what I was saying, which is that medicine and magic weren't really all that different from each other for a very long period of time, and apparently still that still is true to an extent. Um, we we just acknowledge it in a, in a in a conscious way, but 
Well, there's a terminological problem with the idea of the placebo effect, right? The placebo effect isn't this thing that doesn't do something. It's essentially a, a categorization word used to describe the natural ability of the human being to heal. And it's a huge percentage. It's a massive percentage. Right. But, but it's actually positively affected by a confident and, and otherwise competent physician administering the placebo. So... So there, there's both the, the part that's inside the person, but then there's the part that's sort of the charisma of the of the uh, of the practitioner as well. So that's such a um, good insight. But but the, the the what we were talking about that I steered us away from the fact that um, there's magic and then there's witchcraft, and and the, those are those are deceptive terms because those wouldn't have been the words that were used. They would be words in those languages that some scholar has decided were equivalent to magic and, and witchcraft. And the problem is, like so many terms, magic is sometimes used as the synonym of witchcraft, and sometimes it's used as something that is more acceptable. So it's 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 a little hard to uh, to, to to place which thing is being talked about because we're talking about words that don't magic and the word and the word witchcraft aren't being used in those situations it's you know in in um, greek it would might have been like magia and goetia but um that isn't that isn't even necessarily sometimes the word magia would be used for goetia by certain people so you know i mean there's there's never been a consistent use of words there's bad magic that's not allowed and there's good things that use all the same things that we use but it's called something else i actually just covered <laughs> an academic essay on that uh by a p by a professor who just did a, a paper on that a while ago i just cut, did a commentary on that on this very podcast um on that the terminological issues of magia versus goethe and all that stuff so yeah no you're you're dead dead on on that it's a, a huge problem in our understanding of our of our own systems too, because we like astrology is very often not considered to be a part of the problematic stuff, and yet a modern astrologer is very often a con artist. He's just he's just you know taking people's money, and so is the worse than a goetes. You yeah. know, like yeah. you know what I mean. So we 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 this has changed its position in our minds so often over time that it's very difficult to even quite define what we're, what we're referring to as the good magic and what's the bad magic. You know, obviously the bad magic is something that's manipulative, that is harmful, that the person is, or, or that the person is trying to con you out of money. And that, and that actually was a, a frequent descriptor of the problems in magic is basically the same con game that gets done at, out of psychic parlors a lot has been going on for thousands of years where someone comes in, they're told they have a curse, the person lifts the curse or some other, you know, thing that they do that wasn't worth the price that they paid for it and then they get in trouble. Mm. That's been going on for, you know, forever. It makes me want to actually ask you about something I wasn't sure if I wanted to get into, but uh, NLP is something you're actually skilled at, isn't it? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know whether uh, Bandler and Grinder would totally agree with you, but yeah, I, I like to think so. <laughs> okay, I have a I have a very weird relationship to it because uh, um, my only real exposure to it was through. Uh, was through uh, Zinky Pie, and uh, I think his uh, general dis my distaste for him as a human being, as it became, uh, turned me off to even the idea of ever even looking into NLP. Maybe you could disabuse me of some of the biases I have from uh, my good old dear godfather. 
okay, so so uh, Bandler and Grinder. But Bandler, by the way, is actually quite into occultism, um, as I've found out over the years. Um, but uh, I'm not sure the Grinder is, but uh, Bandler's kind of the more, he's the John Lennon, whereas the, the, uh, Grinder's the Paul McCartney. I don't know if that means anything to you, but you know, like the. the he was raised the on the Beatles, I get it. Bandler was more the revolutionary, crazy one. Um, so they they. Through, through various means, they, they noticed that there were these therapists and other change agents who were succeeding much more than the rest of the therapists that were working at the time period that they were, that they were coming up. Uh, Fritz Perls, uh, Virginia Satir, uh, Milton Erickson, those are the biggest ones. Also, I think uh, Gregory Bateson and a couple other people who were... Um, they noticed that they were they were doing stuff at a different level, right? And so, what they what they what they wanted to do was a to understand why these people were excellent, so that they could imitate it, and b they wanted to understand a way of understanding excellence in general to see if we could more generally apply that principle, and um, basically anyone could become excellent in anything. Like for instance. Grinder claims that he can learn to become proficient in a, in a language within like 24 hours because he learned skills from you know some great linguist who was able to do that sort of stuff. So, uh, so there there are kind of two aspects of NLP. One is techniques that you utilize for change, which is what most people think of NLP as, and then there's the other aspect, which is just modeling in general. And and the way that they would model would be they would try and figure out what it was that people were doing internally and externally in their consciousness in order to accomplish things that they were that they were good at. You know, what images would they put in their heads, what feelings were in their bodies at different places, what um, uh, things they were saying to themselves or the voices they were hearing that seemed like they were from others. Were those voices coming from the right side? Were they coming from the left side? Were they loud? Were they soft? Were the feelings in their body warm, cold? All that sort of detailed information on what it was that the person was experiencing to become excellent. Hmm. Out of that came a lot of the tools that are more thought of as NLP, which are the sort of things to help people make changes in their lives. And Bandler and Grinder, as far as I understand, although I think, although I think Bandler has more, more sort of drunk his own Kool-Aid over the years, but basically their attitude was, here's, a, here's an idea of some things you might want to try with somebody. This is, this is, you know, it works with some people. But if it doesn't work with the person you're working with, have the flexibility to do something different. <laughs> and I think the that particular aspect of what they do has kind of gotten lost uh, as NLP matured into a discipline. And so people people keep trying to jam people through, no, you just have to think this thought and then this thought and do this, this one, and then you're going to get it. And the person's just like, I, I don't know what you're saying, I don't get it. You know, but <laughs> a skilled person would say, okay, well, this person is obviously not getting this so i'm going to try it a different way um so i think the bad rap that nlp really gets is because people try and imagine that it's it's a a formula in the same way that like a recipe for a cake is a formula whereas it's more like a style like french cooking <laughs> you know what i mean like that specific recipes can change and the ingredients can change but there's a there's an attitude towards cooking that a French cook has as opposed to an Asian cook, you know? 
Um, and I, and I think that NLP is more, more belongs in that, in that latter category, but it has, it has become more of rest, a bunch of recipes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, things start off flexible, pragmatic, and provisional and become calcified and dogmatic over time. It's just a pattern that keeps happening, right? I mean, it is is a pattern. It is a pattern that they specifically tried to avoid with their own language, though, by saying things like, if what you're trying isn't working, do something else, Um, which is, I believe, one of the sort of like central axioms (laughs) of NLP. And yet people keep trying to do the swish pattern with the same person who's not getting it. You know, it, I don't, it's just not working for them. Interesting. Uh, well, I'm really glad I actually brought this up with you. I wasn't going to because I, I just have this sort of uh, knee-jerk reaction to NLP due to my, you know, just because of my background, my, my experience with, you know, who. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, that's, that's really good to hear. It's good to get a bit more of that, that understanding. Do you so, find it so integrates my, with your magical practices then as a result? My primary use of NLP within my own work was simply to both by studying literature, but then by also talking to a bunch of practicing magicians to try and understand the specifics of what they were doing as opposed to the because because we, we tend to describe things in ways that please us rather than the, that are the actual what we're doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, it's nice. It's nice to romanticize our behaviors because mm. it makes it makes you feel good. But um, if you're trying to understand how a practitioner is getting a result, it, you need to find out what they're actually doing, not what their description of what they're doing is. Mm-hmm. So, so I've I've utilized that modeling aspect of NLP quite a bit um, with with magicians who I was uh, exposed to. And then where I could only do it literarily, I also explored it that way. So um, a lot of my work is based on kind of giving the homogenized practices that, that, I, that seemed to be sort of universal. Hmm. Hmm. You're giving me a, a lot good, to a think good. about there. What's that? You've given me a lot to think about there, actually. There's a. Are you familiar with a EA Coetting? Maybe not. Uh, he's an occult writer. Um, he he sort of enjoyed a, um, a quite a bit of popularity a few years ago, and I think that he he's kind of uh, waned a bit. But he his books were interesting because they're they're really good examples of um, just totally writing things in such a way that they sound very different than what they are. I mean, he, he would describe, you know, a, a sort of a basic practice like pore breathing or something like that, you know, where you imagine light and it comes into your into your pores and fills your body. Yeah. He would write about it in such a way that it sounded so incredibly dramatic that if you were to try and do it, you'd feel like, oh, well, um, it, it's a... It does. It's not. I don't think I'm doing it right because he describes it as this. But I mean, if you you break down what he's really writing, he's just describing poor breathing. He's just writing it in the most sort of um, melodramatic way possible, and that's great. I mean, I'm sure that it brought a lot of people into the into the practice of magic. And I actually think that he's he's managed. There's I think there's a number of writers out there today that kind of like if he hadn't written books, they probably wouldn't be uh, writing books either. So, Um, and I'm not qualified to judge 
the quality of their writings. I just know that they're out there. I haven't read them. So, um, but, you know, that sort of um, hyperbole and uh, describing things in extremely dramatic ways, it's... It makes for interesting reading, but it doesn't really help a practitioner most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In the same way that watching a Harry Potter movie doesn't teach you how to, you know, do a working. Well, speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Um, But, you know, Harry Potter might have been one of the greatest gifts to the occult world that we could have ever hoped for. Sure, so, so uh, like, I, I love the Harry Potter. It, it's funny because I, I probably I was a, you know a bit old for them yeah, when they too. first came out. But, yeah, totally. But I, but, I, <laughs> but, I, but I read the first one, um, and, and the reason was because there was an uh, there was an article in the newspaper that said that a bunch of Christians were standing outside the, the bookstore protesting the sale of Harry Potter, and I was like, "This is a kids' book. I've got to read this." Yeah. <laughs> this is a kids' book that's crazy enough that. Um, Christians are going nuts over it. I think they. I think they've actually stopped doing that, probably because of the success of Harry Potter, because that was such a failure on their on you know like the Christian rights, uh, you know, campaign was, was like actually made uh, J.K. Rowling a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah, she's yeah. she she's uh, always found a way to uh, get controversy from often both sides because because there was actually with the harry potter thing there was christians who opposed it um because it was promoting witchcraft but then there was also people who opposed it because it was promoting christian themes and that's actually a a a hilarious issue that was uh characterized around the twilight books as well in in that show parks and recreation where they're trying to include it in a time capsule and two different groups show up and they one objects to it because of its uh, anti-Christian imagery and themes, and another group objects to it because of its Christian images and themes. You can't yeah, win. I mean, it, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it's funny because I, you know, I actually think that one of the things that um, was being objected to it, it was actually neither witchcraft nor um, anything diabolical, but actually because Harry Potter's uh, a bit naughty. Oh, like he God. doesn't. <laughs> Doesn't follow the rules. Oh um, God! Which is an interesting thing that I think, like a lot of parents feel that way. Like, they, like having a character who is in any way, you know, independent, is something that's alarming to them. And it's like, seriously, you you don't want your child to have a creative or um, individualistic life that you want them to just like sit in conformity with whatever you're ideas are like how, how can we grow as a species yeah i guess those parents really don't like catching the rye or any no. other great literature that's ever been written well no they don't that's yeah. the thing but i mean that one that one happens to have a naughty character who also is is practicing witchcraft so <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, it's it's the whole it's the whole package oh yeah i had a priest once and uh and i told him uh I was talking about fairies after mass and he was like, how can you talk about fairies? That's ridiculous and silly. I said, and this is a very conservative Roman Catholic parish. I was part of that, that did the old uh, pre 
pre-tridentine mass, so the full two and a half hour, you know, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa routine. I, I really liked the, I wanted to see the old ritual. I wanted to be a part of that sure. very old mass, right? I wanted that. I didn't want the watered down new, new Latin one or the new English one. No, no. Um, and, uh, and I said, Father, Father, how can you say that fairies are ridiculous and, and, or don't exist? Because, you know, I, I had just come back from Ireland, actually, and he was like, fairies, fairies don't exist. I said, but as a Catholic, how can you deny that the Malleus Maleficarum has rituals and prayers to, to banish and deal with fairies? What, what, how could the church have instructions to deal with something that doesn't exist? And he did. He, he thought that was uh, frustrating and funny because, you know, a really, really traditional Catholic priest actually can't deny that the church ever might have made a mistake or anything like that. So, sure. yeah, you know, if it's it either all it's either all true or or it's or the church is inconsistent. Heaven forbid that the church actually change over time. Oh my God! Yeah, I don't need to really get into that, but I thought you'd find that a funny story. No, I didn't know funny story. It, it, it's interesting though because I feel like the um, uh, angels and demons both uh, are, are kind of get short shrift in in. Um, religion although they you know they actually predate christianity um but you know by probably many thousands of years but certainly by hundreds of years and uh actually kind of are the backbone of the whole metaphysics of of uh, spirituality you know the idea that there's this sort of layers of intelligence and we are we are at one layer and God is at another layer, but there, but there, there has to be something in between those two layers. And that's, that's what's filled with those. And it's, it's funny that, that, that they, that religion has kind of built itself into a corner where they don't really want to accept those things, but they're, they're inherent in the whole philosophy. <laughs> yeah. They don't, they've decided they don't like it anymore, but they also can't get rid of it because of their own dogma. <laughs> Well, I mean, they can't get rid of it because, I mean, if there's nothing between humans and God, then what, then what is there? You know, like, what, yeah. like I mean, it, just, it just doesn't make any sense. It's just, it's just humans on this rock and then millions and millions of miles through a chasm of nothing, there's, there's God. Yeah. And that's, that's the way the universe functions. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's definitely the supernaturalist view of a theistic uh, deity. Um, it, it, does, it doesn't actually, you don't actually find that much in original Christianity in the first and second century. Um, things were very different. Did you know that one of the most common forms of Christian church in the first hundred years was uh, the churches of the hermaphroditical Christ? No. Yeah, with tons of statues with Jesus with both sex organs. Very, very, it was very common. They eradicated all of that. That was super common. True story. Well, <laughs> my girlfriend you don't know from what 20 years that, ago. Right? My girlfriend for twenty years ago was trying to write a novel about a, a, a hermaphrodite savior. So I guess she was two thousand years too late. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Oh my god. Uh, yeah. No, I've, I learned all kinds of cool stuff in seminary. What I really wanted to learn was he, ancient Hebrew and Aramaic, which I did. Um, most of my work was in tar, the Targums uh, and uh, translating old Aramaic spells that had never been translated. That was, that was what kept me going throughout that whole time in a very large degree. But also what was amazing was to find out what hardcore theologians, scholars, and archaeologists in the theological world 
actually were aware of. Like, I made a comment once about the Jesus Mary statues being similar to Horus and Isis, and the teacher responded just right off the cuff. Well, we of course, we all know that that's where it came from. I was like, we all know that? He's like, yes, no serious Christian scholar debates that. It's That would be insane. And I was like, holy crap. Um, what's, what's weird is that Christianity, when you, when you pull all the pieces apart, if you, if you assume that Jesus didn't exist and it was, and, and, and it was just a, a, a religion that was meant to just combine everything together in a way that would be palatable for everybody, that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, that's what it every, was. Every aspect of the story completely just brings together all the different mystery cults into one thing. The Dionysian, the I guess it doesn't really have the no, but even even it has a little bit of the the Demeter and Persephone with him going down into hell for three days and eating oh, everybody. Big time, big time. So, so I mean, it's just like the whole thing is all in his story. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's why the the Christian Kabbalah is a little bit appealing and even has been since for hundreds of years because. You know, if you look at the Kabbalah as this unifying uh, model of of world mythologies and, and ideas, I guess themes, it does it does create a sort of beautiful kind of synthesis. Well, and I, and the truth is, I mean, the nice thing about the the Kabbalah is it's got it's got the Decad, which I think is a very convenient tool for um, for for it's like it's just big enough that it that it's a great you know, net for everything, but it's just small enough that it's manageable, you know, with, to, to understand in a, in a simple way. But the truth is, I really think that, first of all, we do, we do come from, you know, sort of proto-cultures that, that probably shared similar mythology. So it's not like the fact that there's a similarity between, uh, you know, Indian mythology and Greek mythology is not out of nowhere. It's because they were the same mythology at one point and just sort of split off in different directions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the idea and, that there was ever a fixed... Sorry, continue. Oh, just... And, and that the human condition is similar so that even where those where things sprung up individually, we're all people, and so we all have a father god and a mother god and a household god, and, you know, all those sorts of things are, need, are needed in order to create a sense of who we are. You know, the, the, those are those are the central archetypes yeah. of humanity. Yeah, I, I, it it was a, it took a lot of work for uh, ancient uh, Israel to uh, get rid of Asherah. That took them a lot sure. of effort. That was no small feat on their part. They had to pretty much invent an entire new book of Deuteronomy during the reform I mean, of King Josiah. I, I feel like the whole all the prophets are just yelling about just get. Get stop having sex with these goddesses. Just stop. The yeah. whole like the every every page once you get into the prophets is just stop having sex with these foreign women and goddesses. Yep, yep, that is that is a that is the case. It also um makes me think of oh where was my mind going? I lost my train of thought. Damn. I mean, once we start talking about goddesses, I understand. <laughs> oh boy um what was i thinking jeez what was it oh the so the idea that any culture or religion at any point had a fixed state at which it was like synthesized and this is the true form of the thing is is very erroneous 
it's one of the reasons why like things are always changing there's always different there was always various multiplicities of forms of diff of every phase of everything and so that's why i have a hard time with the idea that there was one true original pure version of like say the golden dawn and that any changes or developments later on are aberrations of the original essence of the thing that that whole neoplatonic idea of the the ultimate perfect form of a thing i think is uh problematic and why aristotle had to do what aristotle did well, I'm definitely more of a Platonist than an Aristotelian, but um, but I, but I understand what you're saying, and and I actually I would add to that that when you do see those God forms becoming structuralized and 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 put into a, um, a a strict sense of order, it's actually in decline at that point. There's religion is falling apart, so we do see. The 12 Olympians come in, but that's just as Christianity was about to start, you know, sweeping through that world and just taking all that away. And in fact, if you look at, like, like I said, I've been reading Plato lately. Uh, if you look there, you see there's like a, a lot of sort of atheism and questioning of the gods' existence that's happening. Even though they aren't directly doing it, they're indirectly starting to go, what is this? What are all these, you know, what are we talking about here? You know? Um, and clearly, there were there were a lot of sort of mono, monotheists or monadists because um, there's a whole there's a whole dialogue that's just about like why uh, monism doesn't really explain everything and, and pluralism is required and you know basically it's a it's a defense of polytheism in a pretty like. Yeah. Another point that was always made to me by my uh, uh, the Hebrew uh, scholars and uh, Hebrew Bible teachers that I had was that Judaism was never traditionally monotheistic in the sense that they believed there was only one God. In those days, they they certainly believed that all the gods that everyone believed in existed. Their contention was simply that their God was the best. Right. Right. So the real, the real, the ori real originator. But that's, but that's. I mean, everybody thinks that. Well, not the even the originator. Actually, just the strongest. You see this actually in quite clearly said in 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 the Hebrew text. It's it's their God is stronger. Not that their God is more real in any sense. More, it's just more powerful. But not necessarily even the first God. It could even be a newer God because the the writings of uh, of um, the beginning of Genesis are much later than the the garden story for example right the bible isn't put together chronologically in any sense so, so yeah you know things were always a very polytheistic um the idea that we had we've always had these three great monotheisms is uh, is uh, is not true well and and realistically all of them had angels in them in one way or another which are yeah, essentially the same thing as God. So yeah, and and they didn't actually disagree. They didn't think that like you know a, a Jew a Jew's uh, Michael wasn't different than a Christian's Michael or even a Muslim's. They were all like, oh yeah, no, we're these are the same angels, but you know, it's better to do. You're with just wrong. Them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's something that you know we definitely weren't taught that uh, uh, when we went to high school, but you know. Uh, uh, things hopefully are changing. You know, scholarships always coming along. You know, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe the universities won't die out, and knowledge will continue to spread. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. I mean, someone, someone will hold on to it, bring it back to us <laughs> if we go into the dark ages. Uh, luckily, we've got all the 
electronic stuff. You know, so hopefully, hopefully we'll keep the grid going. So I um, hope so. You know, <laughs> um, the the interesting thing about the like sort of the first few centuries AD is that is that there was this like popular syncretism going on that was really quite bizarre. Like it's it, the the yeah. Yeah, the, the the equivalent of the the, uh, the equalizing or the or the the you know placing the different gods from different cultures together was so interesting at that time period. I mean, one of the one of the results is of course the days of the week in English, which are um, based on Norse gods mostly, um, but the, but but those Norse gods placed within the context of of the Greek gods. <laughs> where it's like Thor and Jupiter are not the same thing really at all, no. but they were close enough that that's they just were like yeah that's just, that's just, that's the same thing I guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah got right, so. yeah very loose equivocations often made for the sake of uh, cultural uh, appropriation or for conversion conversion purposes sure. yeah. I mean, Halloween's the best example, perhaps, or Christmas, even. You know. Well, what I find fascinating is that we've had the same system of days for thousands of years. Really, I mean, they, they, they continuously get sort of re- reformed, but along the same pattern, and and they and they're so magically oriented. And nobody really notices that, you know, everyone just sort of lives their lives without recognizing the inherently occult nature of our whole system of being. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 There's a lot more magic around us every day than we realize. Yeah. The other thing that I think is interesting is that you'd always go to church on Sundays in Christianity, but but they still were calling Saturday the Sabbath day. Yeah, you know, trace Judaism. Yeah, Christianity is always going to be uh, highly Jewish. That's interesting. But I mean, you, you you see it in older literature. They they will call Saturday the Sabbath day. Yeah, and still, you know. Sunday is the day you go to church. Yeah. But of course, Jesus said, Jesus said every day is a Sabbath, and Sabbath's not made for man, but or the man was, but I don't remember which way it goes, but he, he basically kind of like negates the practical observation of it. Well, he was definitely trying to uh, do away with the, uh, the, the calcified, legalized system that had become so... Uh, useless to the spiritual life of the people it was meant to serve. Right. Yeah. But there was a lot of messiahs going around at that time, of course. There were Apollonius of Tyana and many, many more. I mean, Life of Brian makes a great example of that that actual historical fact. Sure. Uh, I, I always loved well, and, I always loved in, and, and, uh, in, in Dogma when they said Jesus just had the best publicist. <laughs> Yeah, his name was Paul. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 Simon story in the Bible is, I think, particularly fascinating, since it's very clear that Simon was like a popular, yeah, 
a spiritual teacher who was popular enough that they wanted to say something. I mean, like no one else has mentioned, but they wanted to crap on him for some reason. So he must have been very popular. I've just been reading uh, the uh, the 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 Gnostic. Uh, writings on on Simon Magus and because uh, these are of course against him because they destroyed all the most of the pro Gnostic writings but the uh, the the yeah the uh, polemics against him I've been rereading that with this little book of not original Gnostic source texts it's fascinating stuff you know um, and we still haven't made sense really of the Nag Hammadi and the other pseudepigrapha Dead Sea Scrolls that have we only really just discovered we just found them it's a uh, there's a lot, a lot of writing to still be done on those sort of things, and see, we, the more we look at it, the more we recover even traces of the older Egyptian and Babylonian and you know Canaanite faiths. So absolutely, I mean, and and what's what's funny is that like Christianity as it has come to us is very sort of stripped bare, very very almost. I mean, even even the Catholic Church with all of its um, you know images of saints and and you know the humanified God and so forth. It's still very bare in comparison with a lot of the Gnostic literature that has all these weird symbols and incantations and stuff that are, that are like so, so not what we would think of as Christianity at all. Yeah. Yeah. They stripped that. They've stripped out the spirituality and mysticism from Christianity from a very early time. I mean, even the even the early monastics were considered heretics because they wanted to be celibate and just love God, and they were burnt at the skate stake until the church realized, hey, this could be useful. We could actually make this work for us. Yeah, and they did. They're, you know, you know, you know that Christian celibacy wasn't really enforced in the Roman Catholic Church until the 1700s. Well, they should they should get rid of it because it seems to be creating lots of problems. So. If they don't get rid of it. I think they're fucking done for. They need to have women priests, just like there was women apostles, which is a fact of linguistics. And uh, they need to let clergy marry so they stop being uh, just this big organization to attract uh, pedophiles. Well, you're you're preaching to the choir, but unfortunately, I think you and I don't have a real vote on that on those subjects. <laughs> yeah, strange how that why they wouldn't listen to you what you are. I think. <laughs> Yeah. Oh well. You know, let them let the Roman Catholics figure it out on their own. I like I like how uh, the television show South Park just continuously um, attacks them. Though, like there, there's, yeah. some, there's a couple of great episodes of South Park about the Roman Catholic Church. Oh wow! I I I haven't. I was just someone was asking me about South Park today, and I was had to admit I haven't seen as much as most people have. Um, I'll have to look up the uh, the Catholic Church ones now that you now that you praise them because uh, that, you definitely. I mean, you know, uh, the show is it is what it is, but. <laughs> Oh, I've always enjoyed it. I mean, I'm Canadian. Everyone in Canada fucking loved the movie and blame Canada. We loved that shit. (laughs) Americans are talking about us again. Yay. (laughs) We just love that once in a while you throw us a bone and doesn't, we don't care if you're dissing us or praising us. It's like, yo, we do exist. We're not just a uh, construct of our own imagination up in the cold North. (laughs) Well, I like the fact that I like the fact that they, they like 
Canadians are kind of a different species in, entirely in the, in the show. You know, their heads lift oh, off of their body. I love it. Oh, it's so great. It's so great. And it's sort of true, you know. All the best humor is based on truthiness, right? So, yeah, you know, <laughs> we, we, we joke about having flappy heads all the time up, up north. <laughs> yeah, you guys, your humor becomes our... Sorry? A lot of the best comedians are from Canada. Hey, you said it. You said it. I mean, I'm from Vancouver, man. So, like, from my hometown, Vancouver produced both Seth Rogen and Ryan Reynolds, two of the mo- who who them who are some of the most revolutionary uh, uh, in, the, in the crass humor that they brought to Hollywood and inspired Judd Apatow with. That's Vancouver humor. That crass crass I mean, language like, is what I, I grew up with. A little, a little more like mainstream, maybe Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. Yeah. The the list is so long. It's so long. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a little bit crazy. It's sort of like Ireland with l- literary writers and poets. Like for, for the yeah, fact that absolutely. Ireland's mostly had only 2 million people in it in total at any given time, it's produced the majority of the Eng- uh, great writers in the English language. Like what? Shit. You know, maybe it's, it's Irish people feel oppressed like Canadians feel oppressed by Americans. Are you, uh, you feel oppressed? No, we don't feel oppressed. We're just jealous of your your warmer weather. You're definitely you definitely are oppressed by Donald Trump, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> oh, dude, we don't need to be oppressed by Donald Trump. We got our own version of Trump. He with just he just has a better six pack. <laughs> but he, yeah, tr- you think, trust me, you he's think Justin Trudeau is just a, a Donald Trump. He's 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 perhaps worse. I mean, if you actually look at what he does, uh, especially to the First Nations people, it's uh it's uh, horrific. Uh-huh. It's absolutely horrific. This just this last Canada Day, Canadians put up murals all over the country with a torn Canadian showing a, a Canadian flag torn in two, and with all this other uh, writing pointing out the how all the atrocities that. Uh, Trudeau sort of doubled down on on like reminding the First Nations that they sh- they don't even belong in their own country. Yeah, it's really sad. It's really sad, man. Um, that's I mean, we're 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 so behind that though. I mean, like the First Nations people aren't even being discussed in this country. It's all just the, the various uh, immigrants that we don't like here. Yeah, yeah. Although I guess I guess technically uh, Hispanic people are largely more. Um, you know, people who were here first. Then, uh, well, didn't you guys? Didn't you just give Oklahoma, half of Oklahoma back to your Native Americans? Um, I don't know about that. Ooh, I think you should check that out because there's some weird stuff going on for sure. You know, I've always said, I've always said, um, I think in Canada we should give back half the land and require that half the seats in Parliament are filled by First Nations people. People, some some people look at me like I'm nuts, and a lot of but a lot of people are like, absolutely, that's what we should do. I mean, certainly all the good land should be given back to them, right? At so least that's, half that's, of that's, them. Where, that's where they would have been. Yeah. <laughs> right? Oh yeah, no, we we put them under bridges and next to garbage dumps, and, and uh, you know, it's horrible. The reform, everything we've done to them is horrible. Um, it it really should be talked about a lot more, honestly. But yeah. Know, and we're trying. We are trying, except we're Canadians, so we we don't talk very loud. I think I think one of the one of the big problems that uh, that we face is that um, they're either invisible or they're sort of like tr- turned into cartoons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like even 
you know, people, people sort of like practice quote unquote Native American spirituality, mm-hmm. you know, where they just sort of, like, they, they pretend like they're, you know, <laughs> yeah. It's like, what are you talking about? It's like, oh, I love smudging. Right. Yeah. Let reduce them to uh, to some dry branches and uh, yeah. No, I know. I it, it pisses off a lot of Canadians when we we keep giving like we we like to make a big show of giving thanks to the First Nations whose land we're on for doing a radio show or doing a, a school or doing a whatever blah blah blah. And I've always thought that that is so insulting like let's give thanks to the people whose land we still we're still on and we won't give back we we took took this from them thank you for not uh fighting us continuously (laughs) it's like if i stole something from you man can you imagine if i stole a book from your library and every time i read from it i i did a video and was like i want to thank uh jason for this book which i took from his library and didn't return thank you jason i respect (laughs) i respect your sacrifice brother Thank you. Yeah, thank you for for allowing me to take the copyrights for your book and yeah. profit from it. Yeah, I did give you a dollar and some blankets. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, dude, how about you but, give it back, motherfucker? <laughs> ultimately, though, you know, the truth is, and this is, and this is like, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to take away from the suffering of of people, but in truth, corporate thinking, which really goes back to. I don't know, probably the 16th century when they first started doing like, you know, brands for, for, for trade and stuff. And they would have investors. Um, they, they typically rape everybody. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, when you, when you publish a book with a public, with a major publisher, you are, you get, they, they charge $20 for it and you get like a dollar. Yep. For every book that you get. Yes. So, so it's you horrible. Know, but, and they don't do anything with it. They don't say like it's, not, it's like they're like, well, we need the the, 20, the nineteen dollars that goes to us. We're going to spend all of that on advertising, and we're going to like you know pay for you to tour the country, and you know we'll 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 make sure that all the arenas are filled for your for your presentation. They do nothing. They just take the money, and they you know they they, they have staff, and they, you know they. I, I realize that they're, they're they're a business, and it's not like they're they're not you know. The money's it's not like the money's all just going to some person's pocket or something, but but they're not they're not giving back the amount that you put in on on what you do, and that is I mean like that's true of um, musicians, that's true of writers, that's true of artists. Everybody who creates things gets screwed over by corporations. Up I, up until two thousand nine, I used to get about a thousand bucks a month from iTunes for my music. And since 2009, I've never gotten a penny since. Well, those those streaming services, Pandora and, and um, yeah. what's the other one called? Uh, yeah, Spotify. Spotify. That's yeah, no, I'll never, um, I'll never they, get a penny from any of those people they, ever again. They, they actually do things with their uh, they, with their algorithm to make sure you don't get paid. Absolutely. They like they stop playing it as it gets to the point where you'd have to get paid. Absolutely. It needs to be, uh, you know, it would be nice if something changed there. Uh, but I'm just saying that this, this is a pattern, like, yes, uh, pe- lots of people have been screwed over, but we all get screwed over constantly by greedy people whose, whose greed is what guides their behavior, and that, and that has gone on forever. 
Yeah, amen. Um, so, there's a when I when I started putting out my material, my writing, it was only very recently, and uh, I was happy to put it all exclusively with Amazon, and uh, I don't care that I have uh, less access to editing covers or formatting, uh, because I do actually get compensated to a much better degree. And I know that probably won't last, but it's it's nice to every time someone buys one of my ebooks for nine ninety nine, it's nice to get eight bucks directly. That's really nice. So there's 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 phases and periods where we are benefiting, but then that shit changes and you know the corporations are always gonna find a way to take everything eventually. Well, yeah, I mean, the problem with the, problem with the corporations, and this is the thing, like, I, I, don't even, I, I doubt Jeff Bezos is a bad guy, but the thing is, he hires a bunch of people, and their whole purpose is to figure out how to put more money in the pockets of him and the other investors. They aren't a human being when they're working at work. They don't, they don't think, what's the right thing to do? <laughs> the only thought is, their whole job is, how can we extract more money out of this situation? So... And, you know, they don't have another part of their job. There's no, there's no like, they don't get rewarded for the, making good moral choices. They only get rewarded for finding ways of making more money. And so while that system is in place where people are compensated for figuring out ways of extracting more money from, from these large systems, it's always going to end up screwing us over yeah. as quickly as possible. Because you know the only reason the only reason you're not getting screwed over yet is because no one has figured out that they could make that they could simply just take away half your money and just take it. <laughs> Fifty million dollars a month just by doing that. You know, and sorry, we can no longer offer you eighty percent. We are only going to offer you forty percent. Yeah, <laughs> and that screws you over a little bit, but it makes them a shit ton of money. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, those those uh, stories that you hear about, like uh, uh, car, car companies that have something wrong with the car, and they and they calculate, well, the, yeah, certain cars are going to blow up, but the, the Fight Club equation, cost, yeah, like that's those are human beings that are going to be damaged by that equation. <laughs> They're doing a calculation that essentially uh, is a calculation of human death. Right. Yeah, it's it's that's pretty grim. Oh, it's hard not to uh, find our ways to grim things these days. It's it it made it actually brings me to a, something I did want to ask you about. Do you think there's much value cause since Inoc the Enochian system again, which I just really again I really loved that masterclass. I'm really glad you created it. I I'm actually glad because also a lot of what you cover in it means that rather than me have to teach some stuff in the future again. I can actually be like, you know what? You should really just take his course, and then we'll cover, we'll, 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 you know, we'll round out whatever you need to round out. Like seriously, um, and I mean that to whoever's listening. I think absolutely everyone in the Western mystery tradition should take your course, absolutely without exception. I don't think anyone should not take it. So I hope they all do. And just, and, and just so you know, just so any listeners know, I'm only like one third or less of the of the course. So just yeah, Aaron Leach. <laughs> Who's uh, who is one of the top adepts in the Chicks Rose Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and and Stenwick, who's I believe he's OTO, right? He's an OTO. Yeah. yeah, you know, so you get a and you're and you're a hybrid of all of them. So it's it's just a really great series of perspectives with lots of practical advice, and and, and it's just great. It's just fucking great. Thank you very much. Did you, for did you know that there's that there's a there's a Goethe one as well that that. Uh, 
Yeah. That has uh, Atom Shitsan and um, oh, uh, in it? R- R- Rufus Ophis and uh, S. Connolly, Stephanie Connolly, uh, teaching as well. I'm, so I'm definitely going to have to do that once I uh, get back to Canada. Yeah. That, that course is fascinating because, like, while, while Aaron is definitely you know, teaching very traditionalist approach to it, and, and Scott teaches a slightly eclectic approach, and I, and I think it's like, we're, we're kind of, like, at least all somewhere in the same region from each other, but, like, the go- <laughs> there's, so, there's such a distinction between the four of them, uh, for me, me and the three of them. Wow. S. Connolly, is a, she's a demonolater, so she kind of practices more of, like, a, a worshipful way of approaching it. Whoa. You know, where she's, like, ends, I guess they're called. Um, with like little little mini vacations to them, um, and then Farash uh, Shah is more like the Aaron Leach of that course, in the very sort of traditional by the by the grimoire. Rufus Opus, um, Joshua Gavin, he's like a um, he's kind of a he's a thalamite, and he he, uh, he has a completely unique way of approaching it. And then you know I'm sort of like a you know a little bit on the more eclectic side in my approach to it. So uh, it's a fascinating course too. Just almost almost valuable just to sort of see that there's there's so many different ways of approaching magic. There isn't just one path. I think it's it's one of the most important things for people to realize. I mean, getting into the, the I see this all the time on the forums. Whatever I. I'm feeling slightly masochistic and jump into one of the GD or magical forums or Facebook groups or whatever, um, and and interact just a little bit. Um, I, I the thing that always saddens me the most is seeing how many people are arguing over the right way or the best way or the most traditional way. That's a like a, a masked word for saying in dogmatic, in my opinion, because and it just makes me sad because I'm like that's not the way to encourage people. I think to have a flourishing magical spirituality in their lives and it doesn't i don't think it it attracts new people i think it turns off new people and and it's a misrepresentation well, of the practices themselves it, it is absolutely that i think i think one of the challenges that comes with you know this territory is that most people come into it from some sort of religious background um <laughs> you don't you don't tend to get into magic if you're not somewhat spiritual just because it does i mean you know a material a, a heavily scientific materialist person is not going to think there's any value in magic whatsoever so you're coming from a, from a somewhat religious background and most people who are in religious backgrounds their background is what's the right way to worship god this mm. is this is the right way and there's a wrong way so so they come in with, you know, from the very beginning of the process, they come in thinking there's got to be a correct way of doing this because my church taught a correct way of worshiping God. You know, so right. the, the idea that no, um, almost everyone that practices magic does it slightly differently from one another is, is very foreign, very odd. Yeah, that's really interesting. That actually makes me think I should focus a bit more on that um, sort of uh, deprogramming. I uh, idea with the people I help. So yeah, and I'm glad you said that. That I didn't. That didn't actually ever occur to me. I I don't know why. I've had I've had a couple of students over the years, more than a couple, but uh, <laughs> you know, a, 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 a pattern I've noticed is there are certain people who um, they're very interested in magic, but they they are still involved in their religion of birth, and so certain aspects of magic start like more and more alarm for certain people just doing a very basic sort of lbrp sort of magical right is extremely scary 
Like they, they will, I've had, it's gotta be more than 10 people who come from a heavily religious background who perform, uh, you know, I've got a slightly different version of the LBRP, which actually is far less, um, far less sort of religious seeming than the LBRP. But, um, they will do that practice. And within a couple of days, they'll say, you know, I was seeing demons in my room in the middle of the night, or like I was laying in my bed and demons grabbed my arms. They have these like profound, bad spiritual trips happen just from sort of opening the door to magic a little bit. Whoa. And then if they make it further than that, which once you get into the idea that like there is kind of an equivalence between the ancient Greek gods and say the archangels, you know, there, that that really starts to alarm them as well. So, huh? Wow, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, and and the funny thing is, I think that most of the people who who come through that pathway, what they're actually seeking is a more real religious experience. They've they've gone to church. They believe <laughs> that that Jesus or, you know, whatever their religion was, was teaching something legitimate, but somehow they feel like the church has lost it. And so mm. they come to a more magical perspective thinking that's maybe what really was being taught by Jesus. Oh, sort of. A, yeah. They're looking for a slightly more supernatural experience. Right. How do you, how do you make Jesus stuff really work? Basically? Oh, <laughs> how, yeah. How, how, what's the trick to actually walk on water? Um, how do you really? How do you really get the Holy Spirit? I don't think the pastor really has the Holy Spirit. Ooh, I saw him. Man, I saw him swearing at his kids. <laughs> oh yeah, that's wow. I see. I didn't grow up Christian at all. Like I grew up, my family yeah, was the Bhagavad Gita. That was our book, and Ayurvedic and Maharishi, and then Waldorf. So by the time I encountered Christianity, it was uh, I was all I was very strange. Um, and so, yeah, that 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 idea that people might be coming to magic from, oh, that's so interesting. I just never. That's uh, that's great. That's gets. Yeah, I can't believe I never thought of that. Hmm. I mean, there's basically two groups of people who will come to magic. They are either religious and are deconditioning themselves from religion, or they grew up in an atheist home and they feel like there might be something more, and magic seems more interesting than religion. So, yeah, yeah. those are the, basically the two groups. The, yeah. the second group. I think tends to be the people who actually have ultimately have more trouble because they're very logical and they tend not to like be as visionary. Mm. Um, whereas the other, the other one's problem is more that they're too visionary and they get, they, you know, they need to, they need to establish some wards around themselves pretty quickly or they get into trouble. <laughs> yeah. I certainly did always find that the students who progressed uh, the fastest and most in a most stable way were ones who were like less psychically inclined, naturally less sensitive, and I found that they were easier to open up. And that was that was a feature actually of the original Gondong, where they would often not bring let people in if they were had natural psychic abilities. I mean, it makes sense because a person who a person who is a natural is going to very quickly go off in their own direction. Yeah, you know they're they're not going to want to follow through a curriculum because they're they're going to kind of be more advanced than the curriculum. That's a that's a that's a challenge I have because I when I, my my, um, my course the New Hermetics, it's actually very similar to a Golden Dawn or AA course except that it it, it doesn't it doesn't involve quite as much sort of um, 
it's it's a little more down to earth. You'd have to. I don't want to get into a whole side track about it, but the very often people who who are more spiritually experienced or more visionary will find the sort of discipline of of doing doing things uh, in a particular order bothersome because they're kind of past that, you know, and they but they still don't have any you know way of controlling things, and so they need it, but they just don't. They, they they buck at it pretty quickly. Hmm. Interesting, huh? So you're you're you before we should probably end pretty soon because I'm I'm continuously getting texts from my family going, "Where are you?" Oh yeah, you I know. know the time has flown, brother. It always does with yeah. these things, and I'm I'm glad that you've enjoyed it or and stuck around as long as you have. But yeah, what what. Well, I feel like you and I are pretty simpatico. Like I've, you know, like you you grew up a little bit more in in. Um, uh, like uh, Eastern r- religious traditions, and, and I grew up in what's called Unitarian Universalism. Oh, I know. Which, yeah, uh, were, that, the seminary I went to actually was also the seminary for the Unitarian Universalists. Right. So it was I mean, it's a ecumenical. Very sort of it was ecumenical super, seminary. Yeah, super left wing, super ecumenical, super. You know, I mean, they don't really believe anything particularly. Um, <laughs> but, but so I grew up in that church, and like, so I was actually constantly exposed to many different religious perspectives and, and as a you know more spiritual child I, I it just it sort of made me go well if this is all true then there isn't there isn't one right religion yeah. it's all you know, just different perspective on stuff so i think that's a valuable way to grow up i don't not, not very many people have the luxury that you and i had of not being raised in a traditional sort of either yeah. very atheistic or very Christian home. Yeah, yeah. Sorry My for cutting you off before. You, it sounded like you wanted to ask something. Oh, I was going to ask you about um, your your Celtic mysteries. Is that, a, is that an order or is that, is yes. that a... Yes, it is. And we're going to be doing the first of the series of initiations next June uh, at a... Soma Institute Retreat Center in British Columbia, and there's you, anyone who's interested in what what we're doing with it is can go to orderofcelticmysteries.com, and it's free uh, to get on board and and participate. And so, and it's related to Golden Dawn, but it's something something that Yates was into. Yeah, well, Yates and Mathers and a lot of Golden Dawn adepts uh, did the work and the scrying and the the initiation design to start get it started and. Um, they never got to finish it. It was uh, something Yates always regretted, and uh, I've been working on it uh, since the mid '90s. And it's took a while to get things going, and uh, now it's going. I, I I didn't think actually I was ever going to take it as far as I am now, but no one else did. And I always thought John Michael Greer might do it, but then he sort of went hard left into the Welsh aspects of of druidry and, and magic and i was like holy shit he's got taken off he's going he's going all into the welsh he's not going into the gaelic and i'm like maybe i have to do this maybe it's it's my job to do this i always thought it would be great if someone else developed it and i could go through the initiations uh you know but but no no i'm deep deep into it and making it happen with a very wide range of people most of the people who are involved uh, are uh, from the druidic traditions and groups or golden dawn groups and it's a it's a you know, it's it's going to be fun. So definitely check out the the little website on I've put up, and it's it's growing on a weekly basis, and 
emails and stuff are coming out and the practices that Yates created are being used. Yates intended for certain inner order Golden Dawn techniques like Tatwas and stuff like that to be included and so those are all being included. So it will be a mixture of Celtic myth and uh, druidry with uh, Golden Dawn techniques and stuff like that. Okay, well let's do this. Uh, let's let, let's sometime within the next week have this same situation and you can record it too but I'm going to interview you. Oh, wonderful! That'll be fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I don't have good recording equipment, so you, you can, you can own it. But, but let me, let me interview you about this. I, I, I find it fascinating. I think that I'm probably almost qualified to, to, to give you an intelligent interview on that subject. So wonderful! <laughs> I, 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 that, that will be so much fun, man. Yeah, I'm honored, and uh, uh, that's great. Yeah, I, I'm. I, as far as ownership goes, blah. It's, it's all. We're just throwing it out there into the ethers and. Then uh, you know. Oh, I, I don't need ownership. I just mean I don't. I don't want to have to deal with the recording process. No, so. I know what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, <laughs> I, I'm really glad that as soon as I saw you start talking on the course, I was like, yeah, I think me and this guy are gonna gonna get along just fine, and and that's why <laughs> I, I've been so persistently reaching out to you, and uh, yeah, I'm well, glad. I appreciate it. I'm glad we connected. Hey, me, before we go, let me just give a little plug to all my stuff. Um, please, please, please do. First of all, I want to say that right now, I, I, you know, obviously this is going to exist forever and, and it won't always be there. But if you sign up for me at my mailing list, the future versions of the same thing will go on. But right now, I'm doing a sale on all my courses. They're they're 80% off right now, um, which means that you can get like a lot of courses, or almost nothing, because my courses really aren't all that expensive to begin with. So, um, but I so I have these the two courses that I do with the other folks. Um, you know, Aaron, Scott, and I do the Enochian one, and then um, Brian, Stephanie, and Joshua and I do the, the Goetic one, and those are fascinating. And they're and, but they're but they're really kind of only just a taste of these things. I mean, you've got you've got <laughs> you basically get seven days um, that, that go through kind of like the history, the personal history, as well as the history of of the of the um, the working with with these things. Uh, and, and how to set it up, different ways of approaching the practice, um, different different views on what these entities are, and, and then you know how, how to practically approach it, like like you said, scrying and, and various things. And actually, the the Goetic one is fascinating too because you've got four people talking about their their um, scrying practices, which are equally applicable to Anakian or, or Goetic or, or whichever whatever other magical forms as well. So. Um, those are great, um, and they're super cheap. I think that I think that, honestly, they're like twenty bucks to sign up for them right now. <laughs> so, um, if you sign up for my mailing list, you'll probably get access to figuring that out. Yeah. Otherwise, there'll be another time that it happens as well. Um, but I, but I have three main courses that I that are really sort of like the center of what I teach, and those are the sixty day adeptus challenge, the new hermetics program, and the um, Kabbalistic path working. Um, program and those three courses kind of intersect with each other. The 60-day adeptus challenge basically covers the entire knowledge base of, of the Golden Dawn, utilizing some. I want to say they're cutting edge, but they're actually thousands of years old <laughs> mnemonics techniques, so that you can actually learn learn all of the astrological symbolism, all of the um, tarot symbolism, all of the Hebrew letters, the paths, the, the numbers of the paths, uh, the colors that the golden hour applies, all that kind of gets embedded into your consciousness in a, 
in, a, in an inner temple space that kind of encompasses all that stuff um, in, a, in a very practical way. Nobody thinks they can do it, and everyone, after the first couple of days, they're like, holy crap, I can't believe that I know everything already about this stuff. So um, that's a great course. Uh, it sort of presents things on an informational level, but it also gives some, some techniques for actually applying some of these energies in a magical way. Um, then my new hermetics course, it, it basically is kind of like a self-directed mystery school that takes you through the, for all the way from, you know, neophyte to sort of advanced adept in a very practical way that focuses on you setting goals for yourself and all of your, all of your magical and mystical explorations are kind of centered around what you want to create for yourself in your life. It's a very sort of, it's a, it's a fusion of occultism and, and kind of, NLP self-help stuff in a, in a very practical way that's quite magical and, and uh, very, uh, it's, it's, it's still, I think, even though the course is really about 20 years old at this point, although I've uh, amended it over time, I think it's still decades ahead of its time. Um, then, then my Kabbalistic Pathworking course, that is a course um, that involves uh, 22 meditations that are based on the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and their associations with tarot and uh, astrology and, and all of this sort of golden dawn symbolism, but it, it takes a slightly different um, direction than most pathworkings, which are really more like a like an astral tour of a bunch of different symbols as you do the pathworking. Instead, it approaches it from sort of an initiatory um, perspective, so that each one of the different um, meditations that you do asks you to kind of touch upon something in your sensorium about yourself to move past it to move more towards the divine light basically um so it, it's it's basically a step-by-step -step system of approaching mysticism from a western perspective although it does incorporate quite a bit from uh buddhism and yoga philosophy as well although it's super embedded so you probably wouldn't notice that all that much so those those are my three main courses and then i've most recently uh, just finished it's a couple of the things a couple of them haven't even been fully um, put up a, it's a, a modern approach to grimoire magic and that kind of takes a look at all the different magical instructions that are that have been around and popularly worked with over the last you know 100 200 years and um how, what's what's sort of the central pathway through them what are the what are the, the steps that are true of all of them and kind of kind of helps you to create your own way of approaching spirit entity magic um, that is your own, your own approach. And, and it teaches my approach as well. Your voice has just gone back into that weird, uh, thing. Your daughter might be making a call again. Yeah. Meddling kids. Uh. <laughs> That? Yeah, you're back. I don't know where exactly it cut off, but maybe just wind yourself back a bit and press play. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so I mean, the the, the thirty day um, grimoire course, and it's basically a, a way of approaching the grimoires as a uh, as a topic in general, and and looking at the the strengths and weaknesses of each one, and, and the 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 basic steps that are inherent in all of them to kind of help you construct a way of approaching entity magic within the Western tradition in a practical way that, that is very sort of, you know, personal to you. So, um, and then I also have a couple other courses, but those are the main ones. 
And yeah. I'll, I'll send you a link to my uh, to my main page of those courses. And like I said, I'll give you the password for um, when are you going to put this up? Um, day after tomorrow. Uh, they'll they'll still be there, I think. Um, maybe I'll, I, I'll go ahead and add five more uses of each of the coupons, so that just in case, um, I don't know how many listeners you have, but um, at least that'll that'll uh, make it possible for a few more people to to do it uh, for each course. But so they're eighty percent off. So you know, yeah, that's a steal, man. The, the only one that costs over a hundred dollars is the New Hermetics course, and that's just because it's literally it's a. If you were to do it really religiously, you could get through it in about seven months. Um, it's a, you know, a, it's got a, a daily practice for you yeah. know six levels of, of uh, consciousness exploration. For lack of a better uh, term, it actually the, now that I you've described it to me, it sounds almost more like or simplest like like a form of a self initiation course. Again, for lack of a better term. Like, it is. It is. It is absolutely that, except for the fact that, like, which I think I that's great because we don't have doctor, much good stuff like that out there for those people. So the, the the there's an there's an initiation ritual that I actually have you do in, in most of my courses, but it, that is a ritual that um, it, it's it's based on the formula of the neophyte, and it is it it's something that. It's definitely a connected ritual. Like you, most people feel, wow, this was more than just the sum of its parts. You know, it's a so yes, it's the self initiation, but it's kind of connected with the invisible order that we're all a part of. If you know what I mean. Amen to that, brother. Yes, I'm so glad you said that because I think uh, it's important for people to 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 keep that in their heart for all of us part of that college and to, to focus on the bridges we can build with each other and the, the love we can share with each other rather than the squabbles and, and division that, that this world is just so fueling in humanity these days. It really is. And it's funny because I, I didn't, I, I would never have even thought that Golden Dawn and Thelma were, were not really all sort of compatriots in the same journey until the last 10 years or so. Yeah, I know, right? Oh, like my uh, Dr. Fata would always say, uh, you know, we need to build bridges and that's, that's what it, that's what the future requires. And I, I'm, I'm, I've kept that as my guiding image ever since that point. So to Nicholas Goodrick Clark, rest in peace, my dear friend. And uh, what a great, uh, cha- what a great, sharing we've had today, Jason. I, I freaking really appreciate your time and everything you've done for the magical world in, in your life. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me ramble at you so much. <laughs> I really am looking forward to, uh, seriously, don't don't let this disappear, uh, interviewing you in the next couple of days, because I want to focus on what you have to say, because you have shared in this conversation a bunch of things that I was like, I really want to go further on this, but I don't think he really wants me to grill him he wants to, <laughs> wants to talk about me <laughs> yeah so i didn't i didn't i didn't follow up in places where i wanted to so i'd really love to have that that conversation in the next few days awesome yeah to be continued in that case uh, i can't wait um and i'm sure people will will uh, be excited to to know that this uh is just the beginning all right i will talk to you soon man yeah we did good brother to almost 10 minutes shy of three hours so uh 
Hallelujahs, hallelujahs. <laughs> Have a that's lovely a, that's evening. A, that's a good, that's, that gets you through a good day, deal of your work day, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's great, man. And, and, and your, our, our your, next conversation, it'll, it's like going to be a whole, you can listen all day to you and me ch- chatting with each other. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the only comments I get about my podcast from people are how much they appreciate the really long conversations that I have with, with people. Like, you know, like it's this. funny because... People uh, it, it might, told me it, they it, don't it, listen to the short conversations because how much could we possibly get into in only an hour? Right, exactly. I, 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 I totally get what you're saying. Um, I, I, in that 30-day Grimoire course... I, I was I, the first few videos are like an hour long or so, and I and so I said to the people who were who were taking it you know live as it was being constructed, I'm going to try and shorten these things up. And universal the response was, please don't. We enjoy listening to you talk for a long time. So oh, I think yeah. the absolute short of the of that 30 day course, the shortest of the videos I think is is 11 minutes long, but the rest of them are over 30 minutes, sometimes over an hour. So, oh yeah, uh, when, yeah. I found that with the Arnokian course, when 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 people when the when the videos when you and everyone else were saying, oh, we'll try and get this done so it's not too long. Like you know, I'm used to like three hour lectures at a time. That's like standard. So like when right. I you know and and hearing and there was areas especially like. Uh, in when all of you guys were describing uh, how to work, working with the seniors and, and the kings and all that stuff, I, that could have been much more drawn out and, and gone through in even more detail. Um, and it was a, it's a, it's 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 it was great, but it's like you, you, there could have yeah there can always be more. And actually, that was the question I didn't get to say because the Anakian system is based on like you can do work that affects different parts of the actual physical world. Did I actually say that? Did I ask you? Um, no, we, how significant, we didn't really get into it. How significant? How how do you think there's much value in people using that aspect of the Anakian system to influence the world as they, based on how they see things should be or be done? You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to be vague here for a very good reason. Um, you know, do you think there's value to people using that geographical element of Anakian magic to try and affect what's going on in the world right now? Um, I, I, I think that there is absolutely every reason to do that. Um, I do, I do think that there's, um, historically there's, there's a significant amount of evidence that, that the times when Dee and Kelly kind of got into that territory, it did not go the way they thought it was going to go. So, so I don't, I don't know whether it will always work out the way that you want it to, but absolutely. I mean, I think we, our world needs people trying to heal it and, um, uh, husband it in the, in the traditional sense of that word. In, in the direction that will be most evolutionary. So, um, all right. So, so now we now we have two conversations. Maybe we can we can combine them into one. But, yeah. but let's let's talk about in our next conversation. Let's talk about your order and your and your story, and and then um, also a little bit more specifics about Enochian. Sounds uh, wonderful. Practices. Sounds wonderful. And right. uh, yeah, with that, we'll we'll say adieu. Um, I'm glad you said what you said about that because I've been curious. I've been really, really thinking about that a lot. And uh, yeah, all right. Initiates, assemble. Do Anakian magic and let's fix right. the world. <laughs> have a good night, brother. I mean, have a very it, good night. It doesn't have to be Anakian. The whole magical, every part of the magical plane can be, you know, we, we, can, we can work to, to heal things for sure. Bro, I'm just, and trying, I'm just are, pushing your course, bro. I'm just pushing your course. <laughs> There are there are plenty of people out there, yeah, so, yeah, um, who are doing. That.
already. And, and yeah, please join. All right. I'll talk to you later. Peace out. Be blessed. Bye. Well, that was really fun. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.